This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. Hello, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Olaf. We're going to talk about Between Planets by Robert A. Heinlein, first published in uh, Blue Book in 1951, over two issues, as Planets in Combat. And then, uh, I think, same year in hardcover uh, as Between Planets. Olaf, you have a statement to make. I just want to be the first one to describe the prose in this novel as being turgid. Here comes the trolling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, hands up. Did you figure out what turgid means? I looked it up. I I, I did. I looked it up too when you first said it. Well, it wasn't me who, I'm just noting that a lot of people are describing writers that they don't approve of as writing turgidly. Uh, it means. And it's so inaccurate. Swollen and distended or congested. Uh, synonyms include bombastic, pompous, overblown, or overripe, inflated, high flown. Uh, yeah, none of those describe this book. I've not read To Sail Beyond the Sunset. Perhaps it is turgid. Uh, I know it's a hell of a lot longer than his, you know, earlier books. It isn't turgid even. Like, to sail beyond the sunset, regardless, the prose is short, punchy sentences. Even if it goes on too long, it, it isn't uh, larded up with excessive uh, detail and um, and flowery prose. Like when I think of turgid literature, I do think of um, like uh, um, uh, Lovecraft. Love, love, Lovecraft. Lovecraft. See? Exactly. Everybody that, loves that, to call him turgid, too. And it's fair. Like, I, I would say intricate. Intricate. Uh, yeah. Or what, what's, what's the uh, uh, complex? Um, or what's, what's complicated? In fact, I think that that's exactly the best description for Lovecraft because it's like a, it's like a clock, right? It's a little watch that's full of tiny little things that make modifications to get you up to just the right speed, right? It's not turgid in the sense that it's long, because his longest stuff is incredibly short compared to modern-day novels, right? But it's designed and built to have an effect uh, that, you know, is to put you into the right headspace to appreciate the the exact feeling he's going for. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's plenty to criticize with Heinlein, just be accurate in those criticisms. I, I was thinking a lot about that. You know, like, why why did they hate him? Why are they using these slurs? And, and you know, you can't just swap in <laughs> Scalzi and say we learned everything we know. Uh, so I'm referring to a uh, podcast. Uh, this will be coming out six months down the road or whatever. A podcast where um, What's it called? Their show is uh, Our Opinions Are Correct. Our Opinions Are Correct. Ironically. (laughs) I guess it's self-aware. It is really disappointing because I like and respect both of them. They Most of the episodes of their podcast are first rate. Like, I'm not dissing. They seem to be nice people. 
That's what I would say. I, 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 even before I listen to it, Will sort of tricked me into it, just like Evan tricks me into watching Lower Decks. <laughs> Will tricked me trick, into... Trick, trick is such a pejorative word. I think persuaded, because trick sounds like they're doing something to troll or... Or I'll, allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, okay, see, we're drinking. Okay. Um, he okay, I, was, I was provoking. Jesse. Yes. I was provoking. Okay. On purpose. Um, but the the thing is, is I was like, why, why did they do that? And it was that that wasn't even their target, right? That the explicit target for the title of the show was why. Well, I'm going by memory. Is why we don't need to think about or talk about or why we can dismiss Campbell and Lovecraft. And one of them hadn't read Lovecraft at all. So I think that that, you know, you're throwing stuff. You should read Ayn Rand before you say, this is stupid, right? Or or you should read Ayn Rand before you, you know, you uh, uh, read another book at some point. And then say, oh, my God, that's there are other things in this world, right? Um, And I was thinking about why I don't think Ayn Rand is worth reading. But I, I... I, I think it's because, um, she's got like a, a kind of a incredibly odd worldview that is incredibly limiting and damaging. And yet I would never say don't read Anne Rand. I'd say don't bother reading it. <laughs> Not because also, her ideas have been replaced uh, or, you know, trickled into a, a culture through Scalzi or somebody, but rather, uh, so- she's she's just kind of like not giving you enough to make it worth your time. So here's my beef with Ayn Rand that just on an editing level um, in Atlas Shrugged, John Galt goes on a like 15 page um, didactic rant in which the sun rises on page two. Like it's sort of like a, an aside where, the sun rises as he's saying it, and 15 pages later, the sun rises again. <laughs> That's a comedy. That's a comedy. Like, it, it's just such a terrible novel. Now, I, I, I think it's an interesting novel. Uh, who, who else has read that? The, oh, wait, what are we talking about? That Fountainhead? What did uh, you say? No, that, 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 that was, um, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. Okay, I, I don't think I read Atlas Shrugged. I read The Fountainhead. Um, and I can see why people make the connection between Anne Rand and Heinlein. But the thing is, is uh, I, I even sent, I think it sent it to maybe Evan and uh, Will, um, yeah. uh, an article by Annalie Newitz, who she was reading somebody else's, I guess, biography of Heinlein. No, 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 no. Who was it? Yeah, it was Heinlein. She was reading, uh, she was, uh, they were reading, uh, they were reading the, uh, Astounding. No, no, this is an article. They were reading a book review of, uh, biography of. Right. Okay. Uh, so uh, third hand. Yeah, but I mean, uh, they, they just, uh, block quoted a large portion of yeah. the book review, which was a very interesting block quote. It was a very interesting, it was basically saying that Heinlein started off as a socialist and ended up as an, a libertarian. And here's what I want to say. Uh, Misa has not read a lot of Heinlein, I don't think. How many Heinleins you read, Misa? Uh, four or five. Oh, okay. Maybe. One, of them, one of them, there was a podcast, and, I, and I, I said I cannot even read this one. 
Um, Glory Road? Glory Road? Maybe it was Glory Road. Interesting. I'm not sure. But I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but but there was one where I, I couldn't even finish it. Wow. It was either that or I Will Fear No Evil. <laughs> that one is very easily not finishable. <laughs> I'm not sure which one it was. Not sure. Okay. So uh, uh, w- w- did you think but, that there was but, any but redeeming do, features in this book? I really do really, really, really like, though. Yeah. So what about this not, one? Not, it's not across the board. Because I've read this before, at least once before, maybe twice before. Um, that's unusual. I don't usually reread three times. So this is my maybe my third time re- reading it. Um, I'd completely forgotten what it was about. Um, what, what did you think of this? This is your first time reading it, right? Me? Yeah. Oh, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Was it turgid? No, not not from my perspective. Not from anybody's perspective, right? It can't be. And so why are they, why are they using this term? And it it really bothered me because I'm thinking like, they don't want people to read Heinlein. And like, why? Because maybe they'll become libertarians, I think, is what they're thinking. And the thing is, is, you know, being a libertarian is a bad thing. Uh, At least if it's the American style libertarian where, you know, you're, uh, uh, I don't know. What's the Rand Paul? Ron Paul makes a little more sense. Rand Paul doesn't make any sense to me. My he's senator. A, a corporate, a corporate sellout <laughs> as well as, uh, occasionally making statements that are outside the norm. But the thing is, is libertarianism is, makes a hell of a lot more sense in the American context than anywhere else. Um, and so if you want to understand the United States, I think Heinlein is a good way of doing it. He's a very accessible, uh, we got a lot of non-Americans on this episode, right? I think maybe a preponderance, <laughs> right? Olaf, I me, Misa. I was thinking, how did we end up on a Canadian podcast? <laughs> I don't know, Will, I don't know. I'm a British Columbian. I, I don't know how Olaf identifies. Uh-huh. I'm an internationalist. I yeah, me too. Uh, me too, except I, I live in British Columbia. Right. Uh, I live in Treaty 6 territory. There you go. Yeah, I don't think that that's how the natives uh, there are going to be talking about it, but it's it's a big treaty. <laughs> right? It covers most of northern Alberta, no doubt. Yes. Yes. Um, so, it, how could you say, how could you read a book like this and then say this has nothing of value? It's it, it It's all gettable through Heinlein. I think it's only two ways. It's like some sort of whack ideology. And because we, we haven't lived with it for 50 years, we don't have a name for it. We haven't got a handle on it, right? Most people still don't know what neoliberalism is. Yeah, I say those words and most people are like, well, right? Well, but they do know about neoconservatism, maybe those same people, but we don't have a handle for whatever ideology. I don't think that. I think. Annalie Lewitz and her partner or whatever um, are you using and and yet I know it's it's basically it's kind of censorship ideology it's I saying no I think there's a, a like there are enough people out there who say you absolutely must read all the Heinlein or who? you you must be familiar with Heinlein to be a science fiction fan so there's a certain amount of pushback on that gatekeeper I, right? I, 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 I the other thing I think about is they're not talking about actually about science fiction fans I think they're talking about science fiction writers 
I think that they're talking to themselves about who should read what in order to write, like feel like they, they, they're able to write, right? So a, a lot of it's in the context of writers and Paul spends a lot of time in, in the Twitter Writerland. writer yeah. land, right? So I, I know you've seen this, right? Where people talk, they've, they've said, you know, you don't really need to read anything from the past, past, 10, more than 10 years ago. 30 years ago is absolutely not necessary in order to write science fiction today. And I don't know if that's true because I'm not a science fiction writer like that, but I do know that their audience is not only science fiction writers. If it was, that'd be kind of weird. Um, so they're, they're, they're writers. They're coming from the writerly point of view, but it's like uh, somebody saying, don't do your HW, right? Don't do your homework. Um, and I think that that's a mistake. But, the but, best but the, stuff the, the, is but, referring but the to. The question is, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we've discussed this before, Jesse, on and off the podcast. Like, how far to be a science fiction writer today? To try to get published in Uncanny, Tor. dot com, Strange Horizon, etc. How far back do you actually need to read in order to write a story today that will sell, be published, and people will enjoy it, or or if, if we want to extend it beyond writers to reader to, to, to readers and fans, how much of the past sci- what past science fiction do you need quote unquote need to read? Or or you can just safely skip and just TLDR. TLDR, okay. <laughs> Heinlein, TLDR. Oh my god. Well, well, just read just read Scalzi. That was the quote. Like, no. No, Scalzi's, he, he got one good book. It's true. It's, it, you know, Old Man's War is a good book. I haven't read Red Shirts. Scalzi's got a number of good books. And the thing is, anytime, but he's not people, anytime somebody says Scalzi is the new Heinlein, it's actually, it undermines both authors. Scalzi has value on his own without just being compared to Heinlein. Like, there's nothing wrong with Scalzi. He's a good author who does something completely different than Heinlein does, actually. And this constant marketing of people as X is the new Y, well, no, Heinlein is his own thing. There is no new Heinlein, because there's already Heinlein. Mm. Yeah, I I don't Uh, think there's ever... Before we get off uh, this topic, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I want to make sure we get a clarification in... uh, I think both Jesse and I were using she, her pronouns on Anna Lee earlier, oh. and they're, it's actually they, them. Okay. I uh, want to uh, apologize for that. Just get that clarification in there. Thank you. I don't think that uh, that was mentioned in the podcast, so I didn't, I didn't take particular note. Um, sorry about that. Uh, what I will say is, you know, there is a, there is a mistake. Anytime, uh, if you type in the word turgid, and you type in the name of a, a science fiction or a fantasy or a horror writer uh, from a long time ago, you will see a lot. And uh, like there was an explainer in the uh, was it wasn't the New Yorker. It was probably in New York Times right before the latest Lovecraft TV show uh, started. What's it called Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country. And um, I went through the article just reading it, like looking as I do to try and understand reality. And I like, I started circling words. I was like, this is a, not applied, right? Like 
we haven't mentioned, you know, how wrong they got. It's basically people not doing their homework is what was really what bothers me. You, you know, if you go on TV and you, you, you say something, nobody calls you on it. That bugs me because you're basically lying to reality. Right. You're, you're welcome to 2020, Jesse. Uh, no, this is not a new thing, but it's, it's like no one else. And like, even Scalzi wrote up this giant piece about one little tiny thing I said, right? The, the least interesting thing I said about what was wrong with that show. Even he didn't say, you know, Poe's not a third rate writer. <laughs> but, uh, that, uh, and so reading that article, like just it, they're calling Heinlein, uh, sorry, Lovecraft turgid and, you know, he was problematic because of this. And, well, that's not actually true. He's not sexist. There's no evidence for that. Um, uh, is there any evidence? Eh, well, yeah. let, well, hold on. I'm going to ask somebody who's been reading all the letters, like me, uh, spending a lot of time with uh, Lovecraft. Evan, where's the evidence that he's sexist? Lovecraft? Yeah. Or Heinlein. Uh, no. Oh, I <laughs> one at a time. No, let's talk about Lovecraft. I do want to talk about Heinlein as sexist. That's another... Oh, he's very interesting there, but Lovecraft's not yeah, sexist, uh, right? There's no evidence for that. Lovecraft's not interesting on gender, really. No. There's a few moments. He, he's, he's interesting on sex, perhaps, but not yeah, really on even gender. On, um, even in Thing at the Doorstep, it's just the female... He's not uh, sexist in his real life. Just, He's not sexist in his stories. Man, right? At yeah. the end of the day. And in any case, just, uh, people not calling. No, like, I think... Like, I've been interested in... Well, I've been reading, like, the letters to, like, Bishop. Zeele Bishop. the Bishop yeah. revisions, he wrote, right? Yeah. He basically wrote those. The Mound. She came up with the premise, and then he, he yeah. wrote the story. He wrote them, but... You know, he's fairly humble about his own writing, and he's always very respectful of the people he corresponds with. I, so I, I don't get a sense in his letters. He was this super gentlemanly, that, and yeah. so there's that aspect, which is maybe perhaps I mean, not I just, modern. He's not very interested in a literary sense with, with sex or, or women. And, right? Unless you kind of want to do a certain type of reading on the unnameable, but that's not about women. <laughs> Well, I do want to tie. I, uh, maybe that's the, our access into this actual novel. I'll get to those letters later on, though, where he, he starts to. You no, know, he has ideas about modern marriage, which I think are really compelling, and I'm sure someone could read them and say they're sexist. But that's kind of how I feel about Heinlein too. Like I, I find Heinlein on gender incredibly progressive. Yeah, Man. let's let's get to that. So, uh, like, okay, I found this uh, article just now. Okay, through the firewall, no less. It's great. It's a review of the pleasant profession of Robert A. Heinlein by Farah Mendelssohn. It's written. The review is about a year old. Mm-hmm. You guys know this book? Uh, I've heard of it. I've not read it. It's Here's good. how it starts. Here's how it starts. This review says it's not that good, but the review does talk about the. Gender. It's a novel, though, right? Seems to be a analysis. Not okay. A novel. Okay. Anyways, like someone who bought his fir- a first computer, then reads the manual from front to back, but never actually got around to switching the thing on. Robert E. Heinlein appears in his late fifties to have come across a how-to book about sex. Thereafter, an instant expert, he wrote novel after novel, brimming with it, much of it laudably theoretical and well wrong. Famously, to those who managed to get through it, 
interminable book called The Number of the Beast. Oh, he describes he describes a kiss in the voice of a young woman. Our teeth grated and my nipples went sprung. Sprung. <laughs> yeah. Nowhere is he the only breast and nipples under discussion. The book is full of lubricious, maybe turgid <laughs> references <laughs> to them and other women's parts, invariably objectified. About genuine sexual feeling or activities, Heinlein is coy. I don't know. I read uh, I'll Fear No Evil. And I think that's... It's a kissing book. a lot about yeah, sex a from a woman. It's got a lot about sex from a woman's point of view. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and I guess, I think... He's appropriating, this sort of I guess. Revolution. This was what I was saying, I think, in the after show last time. Yeah. He's so adjacent to the sexual revolution. And women being the prime beneficiaries of the sexual revolution, I think, is... You know, he didn't cause it or anything, but mm, he's, no, no, he's, but he was there partially like a, he's part of that. Right. Especially stranger in a strange land, I think is, was very, very influential for the sexual revolutionaries. What if and, he's just a secondary beneficiary of the sexual revolution though? What if like Heinlein is just like, he's like benefiting from the sexual revolution. So it gets like washed along with it. But I think that like, he, uh, he was ahead of the curve be, there. Yeah, like I, yeah, I'm not saying he, he he started out. I mean, movement cultures had a big role in that, right? The what was it? The like the students pushing for access to birth control on campuses, or the Matter Teen Society. Well, um, he was he was wife you know, swapping new, very early. Although organized so. movement cultures had a much bigger role in all this, but to the degree there is a literary component to the sexual revolution, I think Heinlein's part of it, right? Um, let me let me uh and, I, mean, I, I think I I just don't I I don't see him as I don't see how he can say sex. That's my point. I, the, I the, what, the book that I stopped I mean, reading talking about sex in sex. weird ways. Which which one was it? It was it was it uh, I will fear no evil or was it I, Glory Road the one with the princess? I, fear no evil. I don't Glory Road rings more of a bell to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, might might have been Glory Road. Uh, but but really, Evan, like I honestly, really as a as a female human being, um, I didn't want to read it at all. <laughs> if 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 it was Glory yeah, Road, hearing, like, yeah, because this but description I don't for you is not convincing to me. I can't remember what it was. Okay, because according to this, talking about breasts and nipples makes you a sexist. Yeah, no. Uh, no it wasn't that. Which I don't, I'm not convinced of. Yeah. All right, so I, wa- I want to tie, start to getting us into the actual book we read, um, because we could spend a lot of time arguing with uh, podcasters who are not listening to us. Can I just say one sure. quick thing about Farrah Mendelssohn's book? Okay. It's very good. Um, it's a huge improvement over the William Patterson biography, which I plowed my way through um but this one is it it covers all of the same stuff without belaboring the point uh and turns a little bit more of a critical eye on heinlein uh it, it really does make a case for heinlein's importance though i agree there's no audio book of it you've read it Yeah, yeah i've read it yeah. Person, me a review copy. Oh, the table of contents looks great. Uh, where's the audiobook? That's what I say. 
Uh, there's it's, an appendix. It's a, it's a small. It's I a small that. press, Jesse. Yeah, but well, you that, like it, Jesse. I think. I think you. I let's think get you the audio book. Get it going. All right. So uh, I want to tie this book into the previous one we did last week. Uh, all who were there. Um, <laughs> the great god Pan. <laughs> do you That's see the interesting tie in well okay. well i mean yeah. there's uh <laughs> a lot better than that book. <laughs> well i mean they're not really comparable except in one aspect and that one aspect is uh the fawns and not uh the guy from happy days but the we'll f-a-u-n-s <laughs> the fawns, the fawns. right so the, the fawns move overs the move overs as they're called the gregarians is is their official scientific name, right, are little tiny pans running around, uh, like herds of goats, except they're highly affectionate. Um, they're addicted to hugs. They're addicted to, <laughs> yes, nuzzlings and uh, lovings, and they're like puppies, except fawns, <laughs> and they have hands, and uh, they they want to get into bed with you, and they want to eat your pies. <laughs> they're wonderful. Um, and, and there was a scene where he's, uh, our hero Don is in bed and they're, one of them is behind him holding onto his shoulders. I was like, oh, that's from the unnameable. That's from, that's uh, like, they're literally, they are, they are like a sort of a cute, cutie, sexy, uh, uh, sorry, not sexy, uh, desexified, but still cute, um, less rapey version of Pan. Right from mm-hmm. the unnameable and from the great god Pan, and I thought that was really weird <laughs> and interesting and also delightful. Um, so I, I would, I was thinking about Little Fuzzy and like I would totally spend time uh, just visiting with the uh, the fawns of uh, Venus, and then also made me think about the Venus of this. Uh, this is probably the most Venus we get in any Heinlein novel. I don't remember any other Venus as much as this. Um, I mean, it gets mentioned in some of the future. It gets, history it gets mentioned a lot, yeah, but I don't remember any anyone where we spend any time there other than this, and and so the fog eaters uh, of New London, right? Um, and then we've got, we've got the other planetary residents, including the dragons. So it's like dragons and fawns. It's like a uh, kind of fantasy Europe. Right? Oh, oh but spe- mm-hmm. speaking of fantasy, I didn't realize that he had gotten the name of his novel Glory Road from his own novel. Yeah. Year, because I had not read this one before. It's like, oh, oh you never read this before? Stores. What? No. No, I hadn't, I haven't read all of the Highland Juveniles, so this one wasn't oh, in my lucky. collection. My you're very life. lucky. Um, so it's also called a juvenile, right? But Don is either a late teen or in his early 20s. Right. Well, that, that, I mean, that's part of the whole thing of this novel is, is like he, he becomes a man and he decides that he must act like a man and he's not going to be called a boy anymore. And that I mean, that drives a lot of the whole thing about him turning over the ring or not. And his grandmother so it, gets younger. <laughs> grandma. Yeah. That's one way to describe him becoming a child soldier, right? Man. Like, like this is a story no. about like uh, a kid who's like 17 who like becomes a child soldier. It's true. It's absolutely true. There's a, there's a lot of ambiguous, uh, 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 not ambiguous. Um, it's when it's on both sides. I can't remember what it's called. It's, uh, um, 
You speak on both sides of your mouth. What's, what's that, vocabulary? God damn it. Anyways, uh, I have ambivalent feel, ambivalent, maybe that's the word, ambivalent feelings towards a lot of the stuff that Heinlein's always doing. And I think that's where Annalie and, uh, the other person I can't remember the name of. Charlie Jane. Charlie, Charlie Jane, right. Uh, are, I think that that's where it's coming from. So when I read Heinlein, I, I feel like I need to argue with him. Like, God damn it, Heinlein, why are you going on about this? Right. But not so much with the juveniles. Usually those elements are like way toned down. Um, but there are, there are those things in here. Like, um, I'm not a fan of war and getting, getting into the army and all that stuff. I think those are dangerous, but I'm not sure he is wholly a fan of war either. And, and, you know, people can argue that Starship Troopers is fascist and, there have been movies made out of that, right? Um, and I think that that was a very good movie because he's arguing. <laughs> Verhoeven's arguing with Heinlein by sh- sh- doing Heinlein and taking it just a little farther, right? And that's wonderful. Um, that's how we should react to Heinlein. And in reading this, I just want to read more Heinlein. It's just full of interesting s- relationships and interesting... Uh, ways of modes modalities of talking about how our relationship is to other people and bureaucracy right this this is a book mostly about you know sitting around in the airport waiting for your papers to get to get stamped properly and dealing with bureaucrats some of them who are seem nice uh talking to the cops a lot of a lot of that what's going on in this book is just dealing with passport and immigration and cops and that sort of thing and that's all uh, that is valuable and important. I thought that that yeah, that that science fiction novel uh, about a refugee. Yeah, displaced person. It, right? it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I thought it was. I thought it was just like the Wizard of Oz. He got he got you know taken to this land not on purpose, and all he wants to do is go home mm-hmm. at at first to Mars, um, and then you know all the characters he meets and the lessons he learns mm-hmm. and. And then in the end, he says, um, my home is, is neither of those places. So he found yeah, but his home is, his home is space. His Between home, planets. Which, 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 which was kind of foreshadowed and, and, uh, and, uh, highlighted early on where he talks about, oh yeah, he was born on, on, on a trip to, on a trip to, uh, to the, the asteroid belt. So that's, he's basically had to come to that realization through the novel that, yeah, he's not, He's not a citizen of any particular planet. He is a citizen of the solar system, even though that what's his name the uh, the agent says, "Oh yeah, that's a pretty fa- phrase," but it's true. He is a citizen mm-hmm. of the solar system, not or or a citizen of the galaxy, even <laughs> different novel, right? right <laughs> different novel, yes, I know. But right. but very similar in in like I, I was thinking all of the elements that are recycled here. This is something I normally think of when I read Philip K. Dick. I guess I was reading Dick a lot later in life than when I was reading Heinlein originally. But, you know, there, there's a lot of Citizen of the Galaxy in here where there's... Although a, Citizen of the Galaxy is seven years later. Yeah, but what what he does is so he sort of picks up stuff from his own life and then focuses more on aspects of it. So one I of the... prefer go Thorby as a protagonist. Well, like, he's... I, that that novel is also explicitly rewriting another novel, right, or another book, um, the Kipling uh, Kim. So 
he's got he's got like a sort of a greater theme. Whereas here, I don't think he's particular. I think he's just take, packing in all of his his experience of passport control and a military service, right? You know, Annapolis and uh, you know crossing borders think- and stuff like that. Like, if I was recommending Heinlein to a new reader, this isn't where I would start. And it isn't even where I would start amongst the juveniles. Like, I'd put, probably put this sixth or seventh in my ranking. Like, it's not one of the worst of the juveniles. It's not Rocket Ship Galileo. It's not Time for the Stars. But at the same time, it's not Citizen of the Galaxy, Tunnel in the Sky, or Farm in the Sky, right? Yeah, Farmer in the Sky is good. Uh, those are all good books. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't, I don't remember the first timeline I read novel, um, but I, I also didn't really remember this one that well. <laughs> huh? Time enough for love. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was Weird like, start. Kind of like, yeah, that was that was kind of not the place to start. <laughs> I I also I, I was thinking like. When I when we chose this one, it was basically because there was a lot of uh, material out there. I found the blue, the uh, blue book illustrations, uh, the serialization there, and the comic book. I got that out. There's two different audiobooks, although the one I listened to, um, the full cast. Anybody else listen to that one? I like I the full cast too. I like. I it. listened to both of them actually because you I doubled had the, it. I had the time, and I since I had not listened to this before, I thought, oh, I should listen to both so I get. Have a nice grounding on what happened. Yeah, I, I I was very skeptical of full cast audio when they first started because I was not a fan of abridgments, which were you know the predominant form of audiobooks at the beginning, uh, commercial audiobooks that is. Um, and what I realized is the way they abridge is they just take out the attribution, which makes total sense because it you don't need it if you've got that actor's voice. Right, you don't need need to hear Thorby said. <laughs> Thorby just said it, right? Just like you don't need to hear this. Uh, some some fools get it into their head that they need to add a sound effect of a creaking door in a story when it says the door creaked, and then you hear the <laughs> like. No, you choose you one or the other. The door creaked, or <laughs> you don't say the door creaked and. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? So full cast audio, they've made kind of a new kind of audiobook. It's taken the Heinlein novel or another novel, Bruce Coville's company, right? Take a novel, some story, and you take out all attribution, character attributions. You just have the actor say the words. And then it's incredibly clear what's happening, right? And it's not even that much shorter. I think it's like maybe 30 minutes shorter at most. And they don't add any sound effects either, which is amazing, because you notice you don't need them. So uh, you listen to both, uh, Paul. Anybody else yeah. listen to both? No. Okay. Anybody n- listen to the uh, non-full cast audio version? I listened I to the black side. That's what I. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. Like you found it to be an enjoyable novel, whether it was read by a uh, cast. Or not, right? But Paul, you listen to both. Yeah. Do you have a preference? I I, I read I re- listened to the Blackstone first on the theory that that the that the full cast wasn't going to be any good. I I I, I came with the expectation that the black that the single narrator was going to be better, and I 
was pleasantly surprised that the full cast was better than I expected. I, 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 I don't, I didn't like, um, the Chinese restaurant owner's voice that, that really, the actor me for some, yeah, the actor that, that threw me off, but otherwise I enjoyed it. That, that was about the only thing I didn't like. He's about a lot the thinner book. in the audiobook than he is in the pictures of, from, uh, planet, uh, blue, blue book under planets in combat um <laughs> the casting was different <laughs> you know, with the artist drawings but uh it didn't bother me but i also i didn't listen to the blackstone one uh and just so you know the blackstone one is the only one commercially available anymore because it looks like uh all of the timeline juveniles that full cast audio produced are now out of circulation and you can only get them on cd or whatever that's well, too that bad is- that is a shame. It is a super shame because they they did such wonderful work with it, mm. and uh, now they're lost forever. Unless you have a hard copy. Well, somewhere. I don't know if lost. For, I don't know if forever or lost, but they're, but they're unavailable. They're beyond the ken of most people. Unless you want to, they're not on Audible. Parts. They're not on Amazon unless you're getting a used copy on disc. So. I'm sure they'll fall out of copyright in like 130 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you could just be like me uh, and not care so much about that and care more about the, the books. Um, and then have a friend like Jesse who will send the, it to you in the mail. But Jesse, did you, did you get if, the, the Boy's Life version? The yeah. Um, anybody, it's hard to read because of the low res. Um, yeah. and they changed the dragons into, uh, bipeds, I guess. Anybody else look at that? No. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So, it's such low res because. I don't know if, did they, did they adapt other Highline juveniles? They did so not. It seemed kind of appealing to like BSA, I guess. Yes. I see yes. Their interest in this. Yeah, he I actually mean, had of... stories in there, but not as comic books before, as far as I know. Because yeah. I, I went through the Boy Scouts, you know, all the way up. To Did the you? Yeah. It's and it's a very Heinleinian experience, I think. I'm of like, yeah, it was like more or less a good experience for me. But you know, as I get older, you know, I'm more critical of all these kinds of youth movements of the 20th century and mm-hmm. how they. They they do kind of become. I mean, especially in the British Boy Scouts, there was this idea of really feeding people into the military. Oh yeah, right. It, and the Chinese Boy Scouts, same thing. I actually wrote. I looked up the original sources on the Chinese Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had another group called the Free People's Principles Youth Brigade, which was kind of a Chinese version, almost sort of like Hitler Youth, and that it was really about getting boys ready for the army. But that was during mm-hmm. the war. Yeah. Well, that really took off. But you know, the Chinese Boy Scouts also had this very strong militarism. And, and maybe it's a little bit less strong in the U.S., but it's still there pretty you know, pretty strongly. Yeah, it's definitely so, like that. Know, kind of... I mean, I agree with you about war, Jesse, largely. But, you know, it's... I'm not in favor of it. That's I, just a part. That's just part <laughs> of that culture I, I, of... That so I was interested in the take that Boy's Life had on it. Um, I, I have a question about the war in this. Like, so what kind of war is this? It's a revolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, like uh, it, it's Moon is a harsh mistress, except uh, yeah. from a different point it's, of view. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. little more than that. 
I, I think there's a, there's actually very oddly for a libertarian an anti-colonialist oh, definitely. Uh, aspect oh, definitely. to and this because, because yeah. it's also I mean the, 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 the Federation is also depicted as dominating the earth and the Venusians are are clear that they want they hope that parts of earth are going to rise up and we get tiny little snippets that that is exactly what's happening so it's actually a it's actually a breakup of empire story I think Not it's a fantasy yeah. colonial literature, though. I think it, it's I think it's very fantastical yes. in the sense that um, so uh, there's two models here for the kind of revolution that's being fought. Like one is the like um, you know uh, the American Revolution, right? Like the settler they colonists. Reference. They reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the settler colonists, um, you know, declare independence from the mother country, and that that's that's the model here. What's fantastic about it is like. Uh, the settler colonists like do it with the like support and like consent of the fantasy natives, right? Yes, like so that's exactly. kind of fun. Um, and I think this is another instance where Heinlein is a wash in something that's like bigger than him. Mm-hmm. So he's, I mean, he's writing at the time when the world is being rocked by national liberation movements, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like he's just sort of going along uh, with that, and it's uh, and all of the. Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting, up to a certain point in the novel, um, all of the people that this guy is interacting with on Venus are Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, some of them are bad guys, and some of them are good guys. Yeah, yeah. Like How the, the shocking. The <laughs> yeah, like, the guy who runs the restaurant is a, uh, you know, he's like a, he's a national liberation fighter for mm-hmm. the, like, settler colony on Venus. It's, it's a weird thing. Uh, you get it in Moon is the Harsh Moon is a Harsh Mistress too, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it's just this kind of fantasy national liberation movement where it's the settlers and you know in that one there's no natives, of course, because it's the moon. And uh, here the natives are like these like aristocratic dragons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very apart, right? And this you get the same in Red they're Planet. Very libertarian dragons because because they really have no no. no uh Social units above the families. Yeah, families everything. Yeah, I think we can be. Uh, we can be like. I do. Th- we gotta be careful about when we we're saying Heinlein's a libertarian because he he is not Ayn Rand, right? And his his weird philosophy, if you can call it that, that you see throughout his books, throughout his stuff, is not on one side holy, right? So you think generally what happens? You get older. And most people get older, they become, uh, sort of entrenched in their, uh, their, uh, way of life. They said, worked for me so far. And they sort of like settle in and, and enjoy their boomerness, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, the problem with this is, uh, you know, it be, it's you becoming more and more or less and less, uh, aware of what's going on with the people who are not you. And so Heinlein starts off. Uh, as a military guy, if you're in the military, you can't really be that libertarian is my view. You can say you're libertarian, but you're not really thinking it through because being in the military is like being in a, a socialist state. Everything's paid for. Um, you have to follow orders. That's true. But there's a hospital that you get uh, sent to if you're sick and there's a cafeteria where the food is free. And he is aware of that. And he has that in almost everything he writes. But he also is struggling, I think, over and over again with 
what is very, very American, which is the American Revolution. It's not uh, a simple thing to explain, right? So the gradual evolution of how Canada came to be, it's a much simpler story, really. But there's sort of a secret hiding behind all the American patriotism that doesn't make as much sense. You know, like how Canada came to be. British Columbia getting, you know, in on the rest of Canada because it's got this, uh, you know, we'll promise to send you a train. <laughs> we'll get those train tracks all the way across. Then we're all united, right? Okay, says British Columbia. I guess. What else are we going to do? Right? It's not like a, uh, we were all involved in this wonderful thing, right? It was like sort of a, a bargain and a deal. And it sort of had to be unless you wanted to get swallowed up by the states, right? Which were common. So the American thing is like, it's a, it's a thing. And I heard a really great description of it recently. Um, it just puts a new spin on it. It's, it was a coup d'etat, right? The United States formation out of Britain is a coup d'etat. And if you think about it that way, that explains a lot. Like, um, why didn't they like make that deal where they said, you know, everyone is equal to everyone else right away. They, they had this flaw straight from the beginning that eventually leads to a civil war and perhaps will lead to yet another one just next week, right? Or three months down the road. And the reason that is, is there's some fundamental breakage and he is aware of it subconsciously or not. I don't know. And he's always trying to deal with it in his fiction. So that's what I see in this book is, is he's, he, he's got like a foundation style, you know, people who are above this, this nationalism that's gripping earth, that's gripping Venus, that doesn't really seem to apply to Mars at all. But if you think about Podcane or Mars, it's the same thing. These, these international people trying to float above it. Heinlein went and visited the Soviet Union, right? He is a very international American. He traveled all over the Pacific. He is very international. I nearly got in trouble when he went when he went to the Soviet Union because he and his wife started pointing out locations of uh, gulags on a map in a, in a political office political officer's office, and he nearly <laughs> got arrested for it. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the the point I'm making is is he's not one thing. Like Ayn Rand's objectivism is objectively wrong, and and. And yet, I can see the attraction, because it's basically, selfishness is good. And everybody has selfishness, so, you know, when you're a teenager who wants to be selfish, and, I hate mom, or whatever. Does anyone, does anybody know the term Red Tory? Like, the origins of it? What's the term? Uh, the Red Tory. No. No. Uh, okay, so so in Canada, um, we call our conservatives Tories, T O R. Uh, IES. And back in the uh, mid 1800s, somebody wrote a book called the Red Tory Manifesto. And so so this was like a uh, red is uh, the color of uh, the left in most. Uh, it's not the Republican color. So the Red Tory Manifesto was this idea of essentially libertarianism with a conscience. It was uh, this this declaration that there would always be the powerful, there would always be inequality, but that those who had more had a greater responsibility. And so 
whereas Ayn Rand would be a um, a heartless libertarian, uh, I see Heinlein's position as much closer to that of a red Tory. Yeah, uh, okay. I, I would say that that's m- more likely for sure. He's definitely conservative in some aspects, but he, but libertarianism isn't also only Ayn Rand, right? There's this other aspect uh, that's like about free speech and free expression of your gender identity and uh, not forcing people to go to church and stuff like that, right? It's like just being free. And and that aspect he has absolutely embraced, as far as I can tell. There's no aspect – like he might think it's uh, that the hippies that are reading his book are, are un, uncouth because <laughs> with their long hair, but he won't he won't bash them for it. He talks about bootleg uh, bookleggers in this right, book. right. Yeah. So the 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 information that's forbidden. That's right. What, right. Right. Restrictions on what you can read and yeah. I mean the, the whole the, the whole conversation about oh yeah two hundred years too late to ask for a lawyer. So mm-hmm. clearly the screws have tightened on mm-hmm. fascism and authoritarianism in this empire since yeah. our time. The, there's something like I not, not that much, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't have book bookleggers and. Uh, well, but, I, I think well, do we or don't we? Is reflecting on his own time actually, um, and that's uh, atheism. Exactly, like yeah. that. That's like the other thing going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taking, I haven't read enough of of on. these, but I wanted to ask you. So he in this whole because there's this whole backstory in this book behind this current war and this current revolution, the whole thing about the empire that, that, you know, the, the planet that was um, destroyed and the hidden knowledge that they're trying to bring back up um, and all of that, that's completely just left there. You know, like, <laughs> is it, is it in the other juveniles? Like, is yes, this, is this but not really that I'm missing yes. going, is this like, I can go, I want to find out all about this yes. and go back. Yes, and, you can. And see so all of this is. he's got this. He's one of the first people to do this. Um, Asimov has one too. It's basically it's all all of Heinlein's stuff is set in the same universe, as far as I can tell. There isn't anything that isn't, and it isn't wholly consistent. But you know, he he has a revolution on the moon. Uh, the moon's barely mentioned in this story, but it's yeah. pretty much in the same timeline, either ahead or behind by fifty years or hundred years, and. Um, it all it all fits together. He's he's it, 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 recycling, yeah, right? There's mm-hmm. there's a comment on the on the char- on the future history chart that the end of this age was marked by three revolutions: Venus, Antarctica, and the United States. Space travel was ended till twenty one oh two or something like that. So, so 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 I so if you take it all in the same universe, he's talking about this revolution here. He's talking about. Um, if this goes on in the profit of the United States and I, and the Antarctica bit, I never, maybe somebody who's read more Heinlein than I've read. I've read a lot. I don't think that one shows what, up <laughs> as like, far as I can what, tell. Like, what was it? What was this revolution in Antarctica? I want to know more. <laughs> yeah. As the film I don't says. Recall, I, 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 I have read, I'm pretty certain all the Heinlein, uh, even the terrible stuff. Um, Which there isn't that much of, really. Oh, as a percentage, uh, Jesse. As a percentage of, oh, of maybe Jesse. not of words, 
Not of words, but of books. There's uh, there's what, like a handful, like maybe four bad books. And by um, bad, I mean way too goddamn long and it needs a goddamn editor. And I'm including Star- uh, Stranger in a Strange Land in that. Ooh, I like Stranger in a Strange Land. I like it too, but, but it's got serious problems. Anything in Antarctica. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he didn't ever get and to that. The funny thing is, I, I actually... My first time when it was Tunnel in the Sky, which I read when Good I book. was 10, so that's, that's 35 years ago. And um, then I read all of the juveniles in probably the next two years. And this is one that I hadn't read since I was maybe 12. Mm-hmm. And, and, and did I, you find it worthy? Yeah, it's... It's funny because I remembered almost nothing of it. It's <laughs> one of the novels I remembered the least about, I realized as I was listening to it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some stuff that set my teeth on edge. Uh, there's some stuff that um, definitely has aged poorly and that I heard differently as an adult. Um, it actually seems there's parts of it that seem out of place in Heinlein's oeuvre. So the, the early horse riding section mm. while he's still in Arizona actually felt more like Elon Hubbard hmm. than Heinlein. Yeah. And it seemed uncharacteristic. Yeah. I, and, I enjoyed it. I mean, those New Mexico landscapes like, dang, that's nice. Some, some nice landscape he got there, but yeah, it's very out of place with the rest of the whole book in some ways. And this is actually a period when um, Heinlein was just having his falling out with Hubbard. So I wonder if um, there there was still a bit of that friendship there. Uh, but the the use of the word squaw really, mm. oh, really oh, yeah, stuck in, in my craw. Yeah. Some of the... Uh, there was also... I'm trying to remember the phrase, but it was something about in quote-unquote... Indian buck that just oh just really I I mean yeah, didn't yeah, sit he gets, well he gets plus one points for having the <laughs> Navajo Native Americans being international and interstellar interplanetary space travelers minus many for the wording ah <laughs> uh, that uh, I. Barely even registered on my radar there. What I will tell it twice. Oh yeah, I guess twice. Yeah, uh, in a week. That's pretty good. Uh, Twelve hours. Good job. Um, I I didn't even notice that. (laughs) I I really liked uh, the the Venusian dragons. I I thought they were some of the the best parts of. I love them too. Yeah, and and like Sir Isaac Newton is just a, a a great character. He's really good at those sidekick aliens, isn't he? <laughs> really, sidekick Newton is Newton's the hero of his own story. I mean, he's a, he's a researcher. He's got a big family with several generations. Well, he's not he's in throughout. Yeah, but he's not throughout the throughout the novel. I'm, I was thinking like of Lummox from Star Beast, which it, honestly, I I, I sort of. In my mind, I couldn't remember anything about this. Oh, yeah, it's got dragons. Okay, like that star beast thing. I, I was thinking, are they the same species? No, I don't think they are. <laughs> like, it, it just, it is a very forgettable book. And I think part of it is because it is between planets. 
it's mostly for most of the book until he actually gets to Venus, which is quite far into the book. He is not really anywhere. He's in an airport, right? And then when he gets there and we, we, uh, or we're on the airplane and he's with his companions. Um, I noted how many, like there is a, a, a website called the Heinlein, uh, it's HeinleinSociety.org slash concordance. And it has a, um, a list of all the character names in Between Planets. And there are a ton of characters who get names and they are bureaucratic functionaries who are, they tend to be in every Heinlein book. And this is one of the most annoying things he is sort of straw men. And we have one right at the beginning in the, the school. You, know, you guys are talking about, uh, Hubbard's influence. I think that that's per, probably straight out of his own life. If you look at the early 1920s uh, and 1910s magazines, every ad in, you know, the first 20 pages is for, you know, of a certain class for white people in the United States. It's an ad to send your kid to a military school. And they're not all military schools, but they're pretty much either heavily leaning towards military prep school or they're uh, nature schools, kind of like the one we've got here. I, I I would just suspect that Heinlein was sent to sent to one. I haven't read any of his biographies, so I don't know that. But uh, a lot of what we're seeing here is that school life away from your family. I mean, we don't even get to meet his his family in this story, right? Mm-hmm. I kept expecting uh, he's going to have a happy reunion with his mom and his dad, whoever they it, are. It, it was interesting. The, the closer he got to his to seeing his family, the further he was emotionally from it. Absolutely. Like was, yeah. Now, Heinlein went to a central high school in Kansas City, so no, right. he didn't actually go to a school like this in the... But almost, almost feels like like he he'd have wanted to like that. This is where he would felt at home at, or maybe that's just it's, the influence of his. It's interesting, with, uh, uh, and he did go to Annapolis, right? I'm yeah. pretty sure about that. So, um, he he has some you know experience with this. I'm not sure he was a horse guy, but he did move out west, right? California, try to become a politician, owning a silver mine, etc. But, Living at 1776 Independence Way. Right. That's a very, <laughs> see, it's right. It's, it's, it's something he's engaging with all the time. The American Revolution. He's a real thinker. And that's why it comes up. He's got so many opinions and so many little, even though this is not really a hard SF book, it taught, you know, there's a scene near the end when he's, they're trying to explain to Don what, or maybe it was another character, what, what this new technology means. And the guy starts doing an info dump with gobbledygook words, which I thought was hilarious. And then he says, you know, I have to teach you the math and then maybe you'll be as confused as I am about it. That was a great line. (laughs) It's very, it's very good because that's not, that's usually the opposite of what Heinlein does. But when he's, he's totally BSing just to, to, you know, do what he needs to do in some ways yeah no no not at all i think it's the opposite it's to get to get us that technology that he needs to get to other planets that he really wants to do right he wants to have this spread out into the galaxy human civilizations everywhere constantly going into rebellion against their former colon like he's really thinking about the he's so american but he's also got this international view but it just strikes strikes me if you look through the list of of characters, there's 
tons and tons of characters that are uh, either a little bit of a straw man villain, like our rival at the school who wants to take Don's horse. Um, <sighs> you know, he's just so awful. We, we want to punch him, right? Um, and he'd rather give it to a kid he barely knows because it'll spite the, the asshole. And also he wants to make sure his horse is taken care of properly. Um, so there's that kind of but guy. This is written, th- th- it's written for a teenage audience. And yeah. I mean, that's how I saw people when I was a teenager. Right? <laughs> that's true. But, uh, but like that's with the adults in here, we've got like the, there's one guy who, he says, well, I'm going to torture you, right? Uh, or, uh, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to, you're going to walk out of here with no teeth or something like that, right? There's all sorts of different functionaries. There's, uh, when he, as soon as he lands on Venus, he goes to the, uh, Chinese bank, right? And he says, well, uh, I'd like to change this money. And he says, the law says you can't do that, right? That guy's not trying to hurt. He's not a villain. He's just, doing his job but he's sort of in the middle between people who are break the rules to help out a friend like i guess isabel does right um and people who are doing the opposite uh you know uh, deliberately obstructing when he's trying to get his ticket you know he has to ask uh right right that clerk seemed determined to try not to let him on board and so- and and yet there was other ones who's like oh yeah you're right here it is Right. So like there's all sorts of different levels of interaction with bureaucracy. And I, that is just, something he's always engaging the with. Did you game bureaucracy? No, I didn't. I, I know it, it, about it, but I didn't it, ever play it. Yeah. It's, it's basically a story about you trying to get a ticket to Paris and everything goes wrong and there's every roadblock thrown in your way and you have to keep going around them again and again and again. So bureaucracy that, is very important I- for Heinlein's outlook and it's sort of why he i think is so embracing and a lot of americans are so embracing of of just you know wipe the slate clean start with libertarianism like that's ever going to happen uh but but i think that that that's really one of the things he's saying is a reality and then there's the people who in that job are take sort of initiative to help things out and this is I, I think probably all of our experiences with bureaucracy, right? There are people who uh, will follow the rules like they don't care what what it says. They only want to follow the rules or they want to make things easier for them. And then there's other people who say the rules are, like I would say, uh, rules are, what's the line? It's from World War One fighter pilot. It goes like this. It's, uh, uh, rules are for the guidance of uh, for the obedience of fools and the guidance of wise, wise men. Like if you're one of those persons that says, you know, the reason I have this, we have this rule is so that, you know, we have good flow because there's wisdom in rules. Somebody thought it up earlier on. Maybe we should follow it. But there's always exceptions, right? So if you, if you like don't have an advocate in the Canadian, medical system, right? You could get uh, sort of lost in the system and be hurt by it or hurt by the lack of it. But if you do have an advocate and you know how the system works, um, it works. And I think that that's sort of his argument with uh, government and a lot of Americans' argument with government, 
and probably Canadians as well. Not that there's that many libertarian Canadians as far as I can tell. But, um, and I think that's Alberta. Like, interesting. It's part of like uh, the, the part of the maturation process too. Sure. When you're younger, things are like you're just with your parents or your family. Right. You know, there's still authority and, and hierarchies, but it's all more negotiated in, in a lot of ways, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, are you crying in the checkout line or something to get the candy? You know, there's there's more flex in it. But as you get older, you know, maybe you start to experience this. Maybe it's in high school or. Or, or later on, you know, dealing with the bureaucrats at your university. But you have to get a mortgage, right? Mm-hmm. File for your marriage contract and all these stuff. It, it's part of it's part of growing up. And when do people become libertarians? Well, what in age? that process, yes. I mean, there might be some twelve-year-olds who become libertarians. But my experience is, you run into these people like in high school and college. It seems that people start doing a bureaucracy down in. Do you, do you have Freeman on the land down in, Cal, uh, in in the USA? What is Freeman on the land? It's like um, uh, free citizens or whatever, right? It's, well, we call them sovereign citizens. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, That's yes, that. yes, okay. the sovereign. Freeman movie, on yes. the land sounds like so much cooler. Like, <laughs> yeah, not 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 so douchey. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes wonder how much Robert A. Heinlein contributed to the creation of the free men on the Yeah, movement. see, and I think that that's, that's what Annalee Newitz and uh, the other person. Charlie Jane. Charlie Jane are sort of, I think that we, when I read a Heinlein, I can see the attraction, but also I want to argue with him. I think that they're saying nobody should have to suffer from this conflict. Right, just just read somebody but, who but, doesn't but, but, have but, this conflict, but, like a but, nice but, liberal, you know, guy like like uh, Scalzi. Right, I mean, he's, you, he's you, reasonable. You want to argue, you want to argue with Heinlein, but I think their point is, and it's true that a lot of people read it and just take it on critically. Oh yes, we. But that's what you're saying too. You're saying the same thing as them. And what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm don't deny that right to anybody. To don't lie to people about what Heinlein is. Heinlein is. Don't say he's turgid when he's not. Because if you if you tell me, you, you know, really don't like that word, that, that phrasing. I, I, but they, you, you know shouldn't either, like, Paul. Is what I'm saying. No, no, it's no, like I'm just saying that they're wrong. They're they were wrong to describe him as turgid. Turgid. It, it, it's but it's, the uh, but the motivation to me it, it is so important because it wasn't it wasn't a mistake, right? It was the turgid a, was a mistake. <laughs> in what sense was it a mistake? To be because it's not an accurate description of his work. <laughs> describe it as true. Well, but see, I think it, it, the reason they're using it is the same it. reason they describe anybody as turgid. It's because they're saying it's not good and you shouldn't read it. And the reason they're saying that is because they think in a very paternalistic way, like they're the elites looking down at us non-blue checks, telling us what's okay and what's not okay. And the reason I think that, Paul is if you look at the comments on what people said, they say, thank you for giving me permission not to have to read this homework. No, I think there's... That's what there's the comments a, say. Right, but just hear me out here. Yeah. Um, there are enough of us old sci-fi geezers who just love Heinlein and who will constantly rant at kids about how they should read Heinlein, that they have to read Heinlein to be taken seriously in any argument of science fiction. And I don't think that is fair. 
I don't think anybody has to read. Th- I think that's a straw man. I, 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 it's a, totally a straw man, but people <laughs> no, no, I think it's a straw man that there are a bunch of old people who like Heinlein who are saying to young people, you can't have a conversation with me because you're not qualified um, because um, just, you um, haven't just, read Heinlein. He, yes. No, it's not a straw man. There are plenty of people in science fiction. I'm sure somebody did and it. Act and, and talk like that. And it's I'm up- sure somebody did it. It's not. It's not a oh, somebody. It's a. Whole, I see it constantly. I'm talking to my young friend Will. <laughs> He's barely out of diapers here, and I'm pretty sure I never said anything of the kind to him. Um, and if I did do that, that would be fucking horrible I because mean, you, you see it in pro- programming at Worldcon. You see it at what gets discussed. The discussed. You what? What the? Uh, the Toastmaster of the con, who they bring up and who they modernize. No, it, it's unfortunately a continuing part of part of the science fiction dialogue. Like, yes, if you don't read Heinlein and understand Campbell, all this stuff, then you're not a real science fiction fan. You don't really belong here. And that wraps up with a lot of sexism and hatred and all sorts of things. And that's and yes, they they, they use the word wrong turgid, but. What Charlie Jane Andrews and Emily Newitz are doing are trying to push against that continuing pressure. I mean, it's less than people, it used to be, but it's still there. People have said that to me within the last two months, despite the fact <laughs> You can't talk to me because you haven't read any Heinlein, read. even though you've read more Heinlein than anybody I know. I That's... love Heinlein, and people still say to me, like, oh, clearly you don't. You need to read Heinlein or else. And I'm like, no, I'm just or saying. Else. <laughs> like, or, 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 or I remember a tweet where someone tried to Heinlein explain to Farrah Mendelssohn. And it's like, what oh, the yes. hell? Well, <laughs> there's uh, lots of idiots on the internet. And uh, there's no question about that. But uh, how much of that is just trolling? And, and more importantly, like, there, there is this thing where social media, it's more than just troll. Like it's a it's a science fiction cultural problem. Uh, yeah. No, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, Will keeps trying to trying to ex- explain why I'm a fan. <laughs> He'll say, "Jesse, you run a fanzine, essentially," and I'm like, "I guess, right?" You do. He's not. Wrong. I guess. I guess you, I you do. Have, you have interesting pushback. This is an interesting conversation, although I don't know if it's a... Uh, I think it's related to what we're talking about. Yeah, it here. is related, um, but very distantly. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the issue is... Um, why is Heinlein important is really the question. And well, some people I, are saying he's not. And I think that that's a, a huge mistake. It's like saying H.G. Wells is not important. H.G. Wells is so fucking important and nobody ever talks about him. Nobody. Right? Nobody's, nobody's mad at H.G. Wells at all. That tells you something. <laughs> right? If anything should be named after anybody, H.G. Wells should be named after, you know, everything in science fiction, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and nobody, no, uh, you know, Hugo Gernsback is going to get his due one day. Um, and he was very stingy paying his, his, uh, you know, people. But why are we still talking about Wells? Because they keep adapting his works for the screen, he's still part of the cultural landscape. I don't think right? anybody's really talking about Wells at all. I am. I I talk about him on the podcast, but he's not. He's he's forgotten basically, and that's crazy. And everybody should read 
Wells, not because they need to win arguments, but because he's goddamn H.G. Wells and his stuff is amazing. He pioneered so much. And the stuff that he was doing, I was just, uh, I just gave a student uh, 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 the uh, New Accelerator, which is a short story about methamphetamine, basically, and <laughs> going, you know, speeding up your body's metabolism so you can run around and do all sorts of stuff super fast. It's a hilarious, very critical story of science and commercialism, as is pretty much everything he wrote. But there's no there's no hate for him at all because he's he is forgotten. Whereas I think there's as an aside, yeah, as an aside about H.G. Wells, look up his review of the movie Metropolis. Okay, he reviewed Metropolis for the New York Times. How did he like it? Not at all. Hmm. Maybe uh, he was jealous. I don't know. I, I, I found it very long. I keep falling asleep when watching it. But go, going back to going back to the book and away away from these ter, these turgid waters. Hey, uh, these <laughs> waters might be turgid. I agree with Paul. Um, I, I think there's like I think there's things to discuss here. Uh, but uh, I think I think we're having a problem cohering like uh, what the relevant parts of this conversation either even are. Uh, and I I think it is tied in with the. Uh, with the the Jesse does is Jesse a fan or not huh. uh, conversation uh, because uh, what Jesse's uh, retort to uh, me saying hey Jesse uh, you know I know you say you're not a fan but don't you kind of run like an audio fanzine um, uh, his his uh, point of view was well I don't uh, you know I don't like this isn't part of my identity like I don't think I have to like everything that is a certain thing because of uh, uh, who I am, uh, uh, doing this stuff. And I think that, uh, you know, people really do actually fight over this yes. idea of like, who is a fan, who yes. isn't a fan. There's, uh, there's skin in the game here. And so I understand why this is like, uh, uh, why this is like, you know, so intense for people, like both, uh, maybe like the, somebody like Robert Silverberg, right. Who's just like, like a cranky old man at this point. Um, like why it's like so intense for him, why it's so intense for people trying to come into the field. Um, but, uh, it feels like there's like, like more, uh, heat than light a lot of time. And maybe that's just how discourse is. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I agree with Paul. This conversation is turgid. <laughs> so, 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 go, so going back to the novel, jumping way off track. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, I was, I was, so I was thinking about Don's story, and we were talking about parentage and about how he was trying to get back to his parents, and that's true for a bunch of the novel until mm -hmm. he, until really he signs up for the Musean Armed Forces, and it seems to me, I mean, the 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 relationship romance stuff with Isabel is very thin. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, mm -hmm. have, you have to read a lot into it to actually see anything. But it seems like that, and because he doesn't, there's no kissing in this not, book. There's no, there's no kissing in this book. But I mean, it kind of makes, she kisses him. Yeah, oh yeah, okay. she kisses him. But like, it makes clear that she's more into him than he is into her. I mean, he's he's oblivious and clueless, and she thinks, well, he could be a keeper if I <laughs> if I make him. Is, over. is she the only woman in the novel? Hmm. Um. No, no there's no, the Tom Tom girl. Um, there's a time come go. There's a mention of uh, of the wife who cooks the breakfast, and yeah, yeah. The it, it, there's a, there's a lack of female characters in this novel. But 
anyway, it seems to me that as soon as he finds out that she's enlisted, that kind of like switches the I am a that that's almost like the I am adult now switch on Don. And so he enlists and he's more concerned about about being part of this revolution than getting back to his parents. Because consider once he gets to the ranch ranch with with the dragons and stuff, what does he want to do once he's delivered a message? He wants to go back and fight. He's not even half concerned about getting back to his parents. He's now an adult and wants to make adult decisions and become a revolution. So basically Isabel basically without 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 the uh the sex scene, which some novels might do, basically initiates him into adulthood. Yeah, he didn't enlist on purpose, though. Not a, he, he enlisted by accident. I mean, he wanted to enlist to get back to his parents, and then he enlisted. No, I think he, he eventually is... Eventually you know. he did, but it wasn't like he was going to, but by the time he enlisted, it wasn't... It, it I mean, yeah, he, first he I, wanted to be in the high guard to get back yeah, to Mars. Yeah, and then he and, turned but, around from enlisting, and then... You know, he had that whole terrible adventure with the, with the leeches. Yeah, the, the oh yeah, then, that, that 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 was viscerally. Ew. Yeah, and then by then, like he was in, like yeah, but it, it's time to yeah, I have to stand up for what I believe in, and which 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 harkens back to his early conversation with the family friend about you know, saying about what you believe in and being yeah. an adult. Um, another side note. That whole bit with the with the, with the restaurant kind of reminded me of I Will Fear No Evil. It's like a here's the decadent end of empire sort of thing that we if that if that scene could have been lifted from I Will Fear No Evil and I wouldn't have known known otherwise because it, that restaurant feels very much like part of that world hmm. to me. I mean, I mean this this strange new Chicago which kept making me think of Buck Rogers, like the old Chicago's a radioactive room. So now we have this new Chicago, most of it underground, which is an interesting way to redevelop your city, I guess, to avoid nuclear attack. But that sort of, uh, that sort of decadent end of empire sort mm. of feel. Yeah, I see very, that. felt very much like I, feel, I will feel no evil that way. Well, the, well, the Tom Tom girls are called over when the uncle, the uncle character, right? So maybe not literally the uncle, but he's uncle in, yeah, in quotes. Yeah, uncle in quotes. He uh, he pays you know the waiter uh, a, a huge tip. That that could, that it's funny because Heinlein is all the characters, right? He's writing the book. Um, he is that guy who pays but, the waiters, I mean, he, and he's, he's also like the Jubal Harshaw. Yes, he's absolutely he's Jubal Harshaw. Yeah. It's uh, this is the triumvirate, uh, I guess, that we see in. Um, most clearly in Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where there's the young, the young guy who in that case is actually fairly veteran, having lost a limb, right? Um, who is, has a older uncle figure who is in that case the professor, right? Yeah, Bernardo de la Paz. And then there's the computer who is the, the animal sidekick character, lovable sidekick character. And then there's the love interest. And, <laughs> in that Why case, not? he has every kind of love interest. There's the young, there's the middle, and there's the grandma, right? So he has these types, and those are, are fun, and, you know, seeing them. But I, I keep thinking about, you know, why Heinlein is so controversial is, I think, because he is really engaging with stuff in a way that other authors don't. He's very intellectual. Like, it doesn't feel like that that way when you're reading him he's, he's more like plot oriented and uh scene oriented but actually he wants to engage like he has a sort of a 
um, ambivalence, an equivocation on what he thinks, how things should go. Um, so, you know, he has this galactic empire, which Don is a citizen of, or solar empire, right? And then he, he claims Venus citizenship, and he also claims, uh, galactic citizenship, or solar citizenship. And then he doesn't want to join the Venus army because he wants to get to Mars. But then when he signs up, he's all gung-ho for it. So much so that when he gets the ring back, um, you know, which that, uh, that scene, again, that's very Heinlein if you're trying to imitate Heinlein. You have a scene where they have an argument over a point of not honor exactly, but principle. Mm. Their yeah. principle is sort of the foundation of how Heinlein deals with everything, right? You know, notice whenever, if you read The Stranger in a Strange Land or whatever, some guy comes into your house and he's rude, uh, that's the worst thing you can do and now you can flay him alive, right? That's sort of the Heinlein way of talking. And that even happens in this book. That's And and then the, you can go the other more, way, right? It happens more... Go again. Just, uh, I was thinking that that uh, rudeness as a high crime is yes. basically what Double Star is about. Oh, absolutely! It's it, 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 he is fundamentally trying to express his own life philosophy, figure out what it is, and deal with all the problems that he has. And uh, in that that terrible uh, show that I I talked about, um, Annalie Newitz and Charlie Jane. Um, they actually had in the center of that, there was a, a short interview with Alex Navalny Lee, and he, he said stuff that he had said in the book that he's, you know, it's a great book. We did a show on it. Um, but one of the points I think that he, he made in there that was really interesting, um, is that Heinlein actually didn't contribute that much in the way that he wanted to, right? He, he is part of this, uh, set of people who are training they think that they're not training. They, they think that they are capable, like Campbell, capable of changing the future in a positive way by doing the equivalent of science in their science fiction, or at least in their science fiction magazine. And the thing is, I think they're actually doing the opposite. They're doing the training of the people who are going to actually go do that, right? So many people who, who are reading Heinlein get excited about it. This is what China did, right, with their push into science fiction. If we can get people excited about science fiction, we can get people excited about STEM, right, is the idea. And then that's going to help the economy because we're going to have our own tech development. We're going to have... Uh, it's even in this book, the the relationship between science and engineering is very tight, right? It's quite mentioned near the end of this book. This idea i mean he really did that heinlein really influenced a lot of people i know a ton about science not because i was taught about it in school but rather i got interested in it because of that and yet i'm not capable of uh you know putting together a nuclear bomb actually i know the theoretical part of it but uh, I'm not the only person who was influenced. And a lot of scientists, a lot of people went into NASA, a lot of people went into computer science, were readers of Heinlein, reading reading about Mike. And they took that. And, and so when he, he, you know, tries to contribute during World War II, he didn't, 
you know, get that much success. He didn't make the Wunderweppens that the Nazis are making. He, you know, was working on high pressure suits and stuff like that. There's, there's a, uh, how do you, how does he find his place in the world? Is he's writing his thinking and he wrote a ton about this. So that's what we're seeing is kind of the relationship of this man who's born in the very early 20th century, maybe late 19th century. I can't remember. It must have been early 20th. And then 1907, 1907. There you go. And then he, he uh, finds himself in the society that he's in, very militaristic, incredibly imperialistic. Think about, like, it never occurred to me the first time I read Starship Troopers that having our hero be a Filipino was, a, was uh, it's like now you're part of the Empire, too. He's an American just like us. That never occurred to me at the time because, you know, nobody goes around saying, uh, well, on television... Or, uh, you know, in school, nobody says, you know, Philippines was a colony of the United States. That's what it was. It's kind of what it still is. But he was engaging with this very fact that he was part of that empire built. And he's not 100% satisfied with it. I can tell that because of all the sort of ambivalence you see in this book. And eventually the character decides, yeah, this military life is for me. And one day I'm going to go back and uh, see my parents. But he also doesn't give that ring that he, he he got back from the scientist. He doesn't give it back to his girlfriend who wanted it so bad. She's she didn't she didn't want to give it up. He takes it from her, takes back his ring, which is the promise, right? That she wanted so bad, and he doesn't and, even and, think and to give it back husband. to her at the end, right? And, He's going to give it back to the his dad, which is like, okay, I, I guess that's Heinlein saying this guy's you know sort of. Uh, off in the stars in his head right now. But the reader comes away knowing, I think, that she's she's mad at him for not giving it back to her. Or at least giving her a real one or whatever. Yeah, remember her, her father is kind of shocked. You gave my daughter a ring? Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it It's, you know... <laughs> that's the very hind. I mean, if that's sexism, that it's it's that's it right there in the book, right? Is that <laughs> all women? If you want to read it that way, all women want secretly want you to give them rings and not take them back. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and yet, there's a basis in it, right? It's not nothing. This is why so many people give women rings. It's a symbol. It is a symbol. And he chose that one on purpose, right? Could have been... No, that, he, knew, he knew what he was doing. Could have been and, all sorts of other things. I mean, it goes back to my think, thinking, like, it, it, she, Isabel is the reason why she he ultimately become, fights for Venus. So, But, mm. I mean, it, it, it kind of it gets jossed by him taking back the ring and saying, I'm going to take the ring back to my parents. Even though it's absolutely useless and yes. it's been drained of all the data, it's, 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 a strange, it's a strange spiking of his own narrative and i wonder what i wish i could ask kind like, like well what well what's that exactly it's mean? because he's an it's an adult he's an adult now mm-hmm. i'm a man but, that's what it is i, I yeah, thought but, but, i mean but, but why bring that bring back to his parents why not give it to isabel and you know make 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 the implicit explicit i mean is it because this is a novel is, is this a juvenile and that would be bad and um, maybe, maybe that maybe it's just like the the mores and the writing of the time that because right this was written for boys' life, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It was written for uh, Blue Book. 
for Blue Book. So maybe, maybe, Which was maybe super that would just be, maybe, maybe just that wouldn't be kosher by the standards of Blue Book that if gives the ring to her, then that's, that's suggesting marriage and sex. And all no, that. no, that, that, that magazine was full of that stuff. No, it, it's, I, I, I think they probably didn't get pre-approval on it. They just said, absolutely, we'll take it. Um, I think he totally implied he was going to go back and get her. And like, it, it's, it's definitely know, in the future, not, I think. Back, so, yeah, yeah but yeah. I mean, the ring, the ring feels, I, I mean, I mean, that does close the loop. Like, okay. He's kind of a dummy, I mean, you know, our, our character. He's not as dummy as some of the other characters, uh, that Heinlein does in his juveniles where, you know, there's usually a girl who's smarter than him. Uh, the main. I mean. There's, there's all this stuff about fog eater, fog eater, fog eater mm. in Venus. He was like in the fog, yes, the, ho- the whole time. He was a fog eater, yes, until literally, yes, just joined the the military and kind of grew up. And and I, and and I really think that's why he took the ring back to his father to say, "I'm a man now, yeah, father. yeah." This is, I, this I, I fulfilled my commitments. More importantly. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, not about the girl. I mean, he's he, once as soon as he gives the ring back, he's up. he's gonna definitely. Uh, I mean, if if it's a happy ending, right? Which which we assume, um, he's totally gonna shack up. But the thing is, is that's not really what I, Heinlein's I, books I, I are mean, ever he, really about. Even, even more, even more than I mean, I think the implication is he's gonna get on that. Uh, on that interstellar starship, and he's going to take her with him. I, I, yes. I believe there's even the line. So I said, "Where, whether thou goest?" He you said, says, "You said you have to be married to do this." Oh yeah, well that's already done in my right, head. Right. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and he said, "says Isabel, Isabel is it the whither thou goest type?" So yeah, so I think the yeah. is eventually going to take her on that interstellar starship, which yeah. So this like. That's the Heinlein, you know, destiny of the stars sort of thing. It's like, the solar system isn't big enough anymore. Let's go out. Yeah, that's the frontier that Philip K. Dick is always dealing with. And it's also, you know, you see it in Friday. Yep. The turn turn hypothesis, yeah. Yeah. Because because we have Venus, which is which is already got, um, already have an indigenous uh, species. We have Mars, which... Which is a little different. Some of his other Mars, he says that humans really can't live on Mars, which is kind of no. I think it's totally compatible. If you if you look no, at Red no, Planet, he says, it's not. He says that, they're all in spacesuits, right? Yeah, but so it's yeah. It's, so, so Mars is a little less ter- less uh, hospitable than some of his other Mars. No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it fits I, I, in. I, 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 they're in domes. In mm-hmm. is that? Um, uh, has everyone read um, Charles Stross's blog post, Fear of Heinleinism? Mm-mm. No. He, he basically makes the argument that essentially every science fiction writer eventually does a Heinlein pastiche, which <laughs> I actually believe to be true. Now, uh, what Stross then says is that everyone does a pastiche of one of a very specific few books. You know, they do a, a Starship Troopers pastiche, they do a Time enough for love pastiche. They do. There's there's a few archetypes that they pick, but it strikes me that no one does between planets. Uh, no, they wouldn't. But, but no, I think that's interesting because there is something uh, interesting in this novel that could be engaged with. You know, they're going to these other star systems. Are is humanity going to make the same mistakes there? 
Yes. I think that's the underlining question in this. Yes, they, they will. I, I mean, I don't know what Heinlein's answer is, but yes, they will. People, people well, uh, are determined to forget the past. It's like they realize suddenly, oh, there's so many books to read. I'm, I, I'm not even going to bother. I was I was struck by how quickly the the they're not they're not called Venusians here, right? They're Venurians, or dragons, Venerians. No, the Venerians. Yeah, they're how quickly they create that same bureaucracy, right? The, the same all the all the rules, right? Because they're a new state, right? They're a new independent state, but it's all there. It's all in place. The military, all the laws, right? Currency. Yeah. All the stuff that frustrates our character, right? But, you know, in Moon and the Heart, Moon is the Heart's Mistress, you have all this conversation, all this, I guess, this didactism that people don't like about Heinlein, about libertarianism, about the philosophy behind the rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. All this details on, like, how rebellion is done. I think that's... Right, cell systems. Page, page and, that yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but that's what the professor's there for, right? To... Yeah, info dump us. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, you don't get that here, maybe nope. because his audience for this book it doesn't want to hear that stuff. But yeah, you don't get like a philosophy of these of this. No, it's very psycho- psychological. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we they we vaguely mentioned taxation. Yeah, but the bureaucracy is all there. The state's there immediately, like from the origin. There's not even any... Like in Moon and the Heart's Mistress, you kind of get there by the end, right? Mm-hmm. You start out with this libertarian philosophy, and by the end of the novel, you have... Uh, Mike is the government while well, he's... Great cruelty. Mike is the yeah. George Washington character in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, which easily could have turned into a benevolent uh, despot if he'd wanted to, and I believe... It's been a while since I read Moon's Heart's Mistress that, yeah, basically rejects that sort of idea. Now, I don't think this is his intention at all, Jesse, but you talked about Heinlein being kind of international in his perspective, and we had this character being between planets, right? Mm-hmm. A citizen of the system. Um, and you mentioned earlier the American Revolution being interpreted as a coup d'etat. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a f- offended by that, but I, you know, I kind of think Tom Paine... Yes, it's, well, he was uh, in this super, conversation. super. Now, I, I don't think Heinlein is really being very influenced by Tom Paine here. But it is interesting how both the left and the right, when they look back at the American Revolution, they're able to grasp onto Tom Paine, you know, in, in the U.S. today. Well, right? all, well that's like, all, the, all the non-Tories who are left in the United States. All the Tories move north or to the Caribbean or back to England, right? The the or at least the ones that could afford it, and the ones who couldn't, they stayed, and they either conformed, and you know, and their children forgot, you know, that there was a massive resistance, or more importantly, not resistance, a massive apathy to this coup d'état, right? It wasn't the you know ninety nine percent of the population. Yeah, but I guess my point is that if you want to look for that international vision of the American Revolution. Like you got Tom Paine and you got the Black Diaspora. Those are your like two places you can go to to tell a broader international story of the American Revolution. Uh, right? Because you got the Black Diaspora, the people who fought for Britain, 
promise their freedom. And after the war, they go to Sierra Leone. Some go to Canada. Yeah. Some go to England. Some stay behind, whatever, just like you're talking about, right? But Tom Paine, he's the one who, like, goes to France afterwards, right? And is a propagandist for the French Revolution. And Didn't he go to France before? Wait, no, what am I talking about? <laughs> no, he's during the French, during the French Revolution, right? He writes Rights of Man as a defense of that against Burke, right? But, like, he was actually in jail. He was going to be guillotined, right? <laughs> bureaucratic error. He has saved his life there. But he yeah, never he turned did back the, on the he, French Revolution. Yeah, I think you're I, right about him in the French I can't Revolution. think of any other figure that has that internationalism, right? But he's also... Like, you don't want to take these terms like libertarianism and, and put them anachronistically in the 18th century, I don't think. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason why Glenn Beck and, and libertarians and conservatives like Tom Paine. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why, like, the left adores Tom Paine. He's, you know, uh, that there's yeah. something about him. And, and, like, he was anti British more than almost anybody who ever existed, right? Anti-British, but, but right. But he, he was also part of. I think the, he talked about liberty. And I, he does. But he talked about liberty in a way, I think, better than other American revolutionaries. Yeah, more bottom-up way. Yes, I think he was and probably it, for something different than the other American revolutionaries. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not. Probably, he's, he's not. A, he's not the coup d'état part of the revolution. He's the revolution part of the revolution right yeah but there's no tom Paine statue in washington no and of course there isn't because what his message is is not compatible with with the the united states really right that's why he does have he's he's kind of like uh the u.s version of um who's the cuban guys on all the t-shirts uh che Guevara. right he's all he's like he's the american che he comes in from another yeah, country, shakes. Tom Paine. <laughs> yeah, I, I wear a shirt with Tom Paine for sure. Well, uh, I know Heinlein's. Uh, the one I did recently. There's a story by Westlake, his first published story uh, as an adult. You know, where it's not in his high school newspaper, um, is about uh, not Thomas Paine. It's about um, Patrick Henry. And it, it, the story is he, I, I guess, Will, you probably heard this episode. If, oh, maybe not. It hasn't been out yet. Okay. That's why. No, no. I've just heard you tell this story three times. Okay. Yeah. The important part is, um, uh, this guy, Patrick Henry stays alive after he gives that quote unquote speech, uh, give me liberty or give me death. Um, the gods chose to get, give him liberty and not death. So he doesn't die. And eventually he dies just when this story is being uh, just around the time this story is being published, probably of McCarthyism. <laughs> um, he, he takes a bullet to the brain during the uh, Civil War. Um, he almost dies, uh, from a heart, heart attack or heartache or whatever when, uh, the Monroe Doctrine is announced, right? And the injuries that are thrown upon this character are injuries to the United States is the idea, right? Patrick Henry is the seventh, 18th century equivalent of of uh, a libertarian in, in many respects, anyways, not completely. 
um, and that idea of liberty, 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 and the Statue of Liberty, the Ode to Liberty, we're the freest nation, right? All the, all these like lies that people are telling themselves about what's going on. Um, they they are they are they're secular saints, but we can't have too much liberty. Not when you know we have to bring in the national guard when we have to have fourteen different levels of bureaucracy. And so, it, it, I really think it's very important to understand how um, important it is to read Heinlein for the for understanding the United States. Maybe all the Americans already understand that, and they don't need to read him. I don't think that's true either. Um, but he he is very important for his period of time. He's highly influential, and there's a reason for that. Even a book like this that's utterly forgettable in plot and detail, I think largely because of its its odd setting, right? It's sort of not anywhere in, for the most part of the book. It's not on Earth. It's not really... On it's Venus. in airports. It's in airports, right? I, I wonder, to, to, to your point about whether or not Americans understand the United States, I actually wonder if anyone misunderstands the United States I'm more sure. than Americans. Uh, I'm sure they... Um, that's... You know, it, 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 it's very hard to... Like, the lack of knowledge about the other countries is so pervasive... That I have to have conversations like, you know, what Canadian healthcare is and, uh, you know, are there death panels and stuff like that? Like, it's ridiculous, right? There's just no coverage and no education. So unless you're doing that all on your own, it doesn't exist. And Heinlein's sort of like a little glimpse outside of the borders. Um, and mostly it's by analogy, right? In outer space. That's useful, but he's still primarily focused on the U.S. Oh, uh, the good news is that uh, I got passed over by the death panel this month. Oh, good. Uh, have have you have you seen your death panel recently? Well, you know, I'm always worried. I'm um, my number's going to come up, but yeah, no, there's no death panels. Uh, well, I mean, it's it. It's incredible the amount of ignorance spawned on purpose. Like, I don't understand what, what, how it happened exactly. And maybe that's not a question for today, but how, how did Stupas, I believe shortly. So yeah, you can take off. We're done. But how, how did this happen? How did it become that you can't know anything about other countries? Like Russia has socialized medicine. Right. They're the adversary. Why? Because. Jesse, knowledge is clearly un-American. <laughs> mm, oh. No, I disagree with that. I think you're I kid, being facetious on purpose. I think, uh, I you're think trolling. It's like, I mean, the public ideology <laughs> in any country is going to be myopic about that country, right? Like, so. Um, uh, oh, no, I think Canada is sort of overeducated about its own system. Yeah, but like, but like, that's probably from me teaching it all day. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you all have like, like, there's like a better relationship in Canada between like the the federal state and like the natives or whatever. But like, mm. I mean, like, oh no, I don't think oh, the no. natives oh, will no. tell you that. Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, I think it's really. just really bad in the United States. It's like, uh, you it's know. probably like, slightly less like, worse in Canada, but it's really bad. 
Yeah, I mean, but I, I don't think that like most Canadians like wake up and think like I am like a citizen of a genocidal settler colonial state that like you know like this was like Justin sure Justin doesn't wake up that saying that to himself. He comforts himself with his tattoos and his his uh, childhood portrait with Fidel Castro. Well, no, I was uh, like I'm trying to think of. Uh, he has any native art in his house. That's that's Jordan Peterson. <laughs> that's a different story. I'm sure that, hey, I'm sure that huh? Justin has some native art in his house. He has some on his body. Do you know who Jordan Peterson went to high school with? I have no idea. You? Rachel Notley. Oh, well, that makes sense. They're similar uh, age. Yeah, but it's like in a random tiny small town in northern Alberta. It's a small country, population-wise. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> He's in Toronto now, isn't he? Uh, yes. I would assume. Yeah. Uh, had you read this before? Um, Will, you hadn't read it, but uh, Evan, had you read this before? I know Misa hadn't. No, I haven't read that much Heinlein, actually. Yeah. Moon is a harsh mistress. Strange Stranger. Moon is a harsh mistress. Uh, evil. Uh, I'll fear no evil. Right. Starship Troopers, I guess. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was probably the first I read years ago. Somehow you survived um, until now. Yeah, I, I, I need to read more of it. Me too. Because everyone is saying, you know, we shouldn't. So. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's my <laughs> main thing. Is, you know, you go on TV. This is why no one... No, I read Double Star, too. Yeah, Double Star. Double Star, great book. Yeah. Um, if you go on TV and you say, you know... Communication 100 years ago was shouting out the window, and nobody knows what I'm talking about, but this is this goddamn Michio Kaku, right? Goes on TV, tons of interviews, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, lots of TV channel shows, you know, specials about his latest shitty book, and he just lies. Like, lies so obviously that it's like, he can't obviously, he can't believe that. It just sounds good, so, then nobody calls him on it. It just drives me up the fucking wall because it's a lie. And they're saying, <laughs> why can they do that? Get away. <laughs> like somebody should be angry about this. I, apparently that's my job. Uh, what, what, what gets you angry, uh, is, is what you're worried about other people doing. Is, what's that logic? Uh, it's like that Jimmy Dore video. Is that a, that's, what is uh, the definition of puritanism according to Arthur Miller? Somebody uh-huh. is like, uh, the like deep fear that someone somewhere is uh, like having a good time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the Puritan <laughs> philosophy, yes. No, uh, yeah, that's not my problem. My problem is, uh, I, I have a relationship with lying. Like, I, I try never to do it. And so when I see other people doing it, it makes me mad. But then there's like that kayfabe thing that uh, Marissa turned me on to, the fake wrestling thing. Oh, yeah. Re- yeah, wrestling storylines. So Donald there. Trump doesn't trigger me at all because, yeah, he's, I mean, he's everything about him is a lie, right? He's, he, <laughs> he's like the most obvious liar ever. Um, but uh, people like to be lied to. And I think that's incredibly fucking dangerous. It's like... You know, you tell yourself a fiction, you subscribe to some ideology, and then you, you, you take it in, and then you, it allows you to not think. 
I think that's really fucking one dangerous. One of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite quotes about science fiction actually has to do with lying, and it's from The Dreams Our Stuff Is Made Of by Thomas Deitch. Uh, American, America is a nation of liars, and as such, science fiction has a unique claim to be our national literature, for it is best suited huh. to telling the sorts of lies we like to hear about ourselves. Wow. Hmm. That, yeah. yeah. That, that goes Great in with the, the anti-colonial fantasy, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, like we're like our revolution, just like um, like every other one. Yeah. So what, what's the United States immediately start doing as soon as it, it's up and running? Try and put down other, uh, other countries' revolutions. Now, it doesn't go around helping them like Cuba did, right? Rather. Or like, or, or like Haiti did. Right. <laughs> Uh, there's like they, a, they like supported the South American revolutions from Haiti. Right. Like, uh, there's there's a kind of like uh, that's what makes it you know that coup d'état line ring so true, is that yeah business as usual just with us in charge, <laughs> and it's like oh yeah of course um, but you know you have to I mean they're still called governors right of each of the states. I think well, and they, uh, that's yeah. interesting, right? They didn't fundamentally rewrite everything because they couldn't because that's not what the whole thing was about. The whole thing was about, you know, we get to tax our own people, not, you know, you it, know it, it was an upper class legal right? system in the United States. We call it the Anglo-American legal system. Mm. The United right? States was founded on the primary notion that the role of government is to protect property from the majority. Mm hmm. I mean, that's how the election system goes, too, right? That's that's yeah, why that's yeah, why that's Wayne has a vote, so to speak. But I don't know. You you still have like I I the American Revolution is in a sense a civil war about these issues as well. Yeah, and even in the early Republic, sure you have that. I mean, actually, in that blog post, you where you were highlighted for this Heinlein public domain stuff. Mm. Right. One of the comments, for no reason, one of the commenters wants to cancel Jefferson. Which, okay, whatever. He's, just, he's contra- a creepy kind of rapist. The 90s, right? Like that was done in the nineties. Yeah, that's already kind of done. But one of the reasons this person wanted to cancel Jefferson is because he supported he supported the French Revolution when it got really nutty. That was the argument that this commenter made. What was the What was the one I was, tweeted at? Yeah, kind of funny because. Because uh, Jefferson did support overseas revolutions, he was not yes. trying to. Yeah, you know, he, he except was... Haiti, except Haiti. Well, uh, the Haitian one kind of bothered him a little bit, but whatever <laughs> contradictions there are in Jefferson, whatever contradictions there are in Jefferson about this, and they're all obvious. They're right, biggest slaveholder around, right? He did believe in, you know. A relatively egalitarian distribution of property. I mean, his whole agrarian dream was based on that. Yeah, he was definitely and, under under his own ideology. He was working on well, it. I mean, yeah, dream is the key it's, word it's in what you just said. It, it, it's a dream, it really but funny, it does though. affect it does affect law. It, like the Homestead Act is oh, yeah. a manifestation of the Jeffersonian ideal, even though that gets co opted by the railroads and corporations. Jefferson also, like, Jefferson is probably the president closest to Heinlein's outlook on the world. 
And when Jefferson actually had a chance to put his policies into practice, it didn't, didn't actually do that well. Like, people forget that yeah. Jefferson's destruction of interstate commerce and his, uh, his reduction in U.S. military spending basically led to uh, economic stagnation and to the War of 1812. Like, he, he didn't do yeah, a Yeah, and great eventually job. the Jeffersonians had to reverse all this. This is the whole point. If, have you guys read Henry Adams' history? Mm-mm. It's way too long. For someone like Jesse, <laughs> it's like two thousand pages. It's like what? It's like six volumes or something. It's huge, but it covers the presidencies of Jefferson and and Madison. And the whole thesis is is like this revolutionary ideal coming to power, right? They actually call it the Revolution of eighteen hundred. And by the end, they have to go back and basically be uh, Hamiltonians, right? Wasn't there somebody Parsons named Wilson in this book? I, 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 maybe I'm confusing it with somebody let else. Me, let me check the concordance. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> um, uh, Wilkins. Wilkins. Okay, maybe it's a different Heinlein I was There's reading. A Jefferson in this book. Ah. Yeah, that's. It, it, yeah. It, what do you guys make of the the Venusians? I'm going to say Venusians. Sorry. Venerians. Uh, Venerians. Yeah. I, I'm I'm all up when the. The Gregarians. Um, <laughs> okay. I think they're wonderful. All taking on, taking on these, these, <coughs> these names. I didn't quite know what to make of it. They're the little um, fuzzies of this planet, and nobody loves them. They they just want love. No, no, he's talking about the dragon. I know. I The dragons are... Taking on Isaac Newton or Galileo. Oh. That's their name. I think that, that, that sounds familiar from either history or other novels where where aliens or other people did that. I know, I know after the civil war, some ex slaves took on other names. Well, exchange students do that, right? Yes. Oh, like, um, I'm not going to like try to get this, uh, these people in this town in Eastern Kentucky to call me like Yulon. So I'm just going to go by Naomi now. Like, yeah, all my Korean students pretty much changed their names. Most of my Chinese students do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got students with weird names. They, They get, Sometimes I, I confront them. It's like, oh, that sounds like a stripper name. <laughs> I am going to have to log off. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Thanks very much for having me on again. Thank I you. Really love listening to this podcast and hearing all y'all's thoughts, and it's just such a treat to be able to come on here once. Happy in a while. to have you. Happy to have you on again. I, I don't know when we're next to get Jonah Heinlein, but it'll happen at some point. He's Ooh, not canceled. Thanks. He's uncanceled. <laughs> I'm uncanceling that. I not, I not. Okay, Campbell was a great writer. What? Yeah. Whoa! This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. Goodbye, Paul. Which one was Twilight again? That was the, the time I, traveler one. I haven't read it in so long, but it was in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Maybe it's the road to science fiction. Twilight. Yeah, Marvel. this guy for the future and like how everything becomes really decadent over yeah. like millions of years, right? Yeah, it sounds good. I, it's yeah. been so long since I read it. Yeah.
Um, I think I might hey, have Jesse, read that. Story I got, I got this Wilson reference for you. Oh yeah, where's the Wilson? Um, well, so the the scientific it's not in the concordance in a place I can find it, but the uh-huh. scientific name of the dragons is right. Draco Veneris Wilsoni. That's the what. Wa- that's what it was. Yeah, I remember now. Thank you. Um, which is interesting because I think they're named after the people who discovered them. Yeah. And there's a, a there. It's not that um you know it's necessarily the same. Wilson reference, but uh, Wilson is he's a fucker, so <laughs> and he's very responsible for evil that uh, Heinlein is happy to ignore, I guess. It's 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 really hard for people, right? Like uh, when I talk to Julie about uh, not Julian Assange as much as uh, Snowden, right? She's like, nope. I, I, like, I was really mad when that movie came out, the uh, James Bond movie, and they made, uh, one of the characters, like, uh, Julian Assange, they give him white hair, and he did the same thing, and he's evil, and then they uglied him up, and, like, that guy's doing the opposite of evil. He's making information known, and Julie can't have it. She can't have it for two reasons. One, she's propagandized, right? A lot of people are. It's very difficult. She's American. She needs to be American. It's in her identity. She identifies as an American. I, this is all my reading of her psychology. And then she just plain told me that she has relatives who work in the spy industrial complex and that that was not on. It's just untalkoutable, right? You can't talk about it. It's hard for people. Right. If your kid's in the military, you can't say to yourself, my kid's off doing colonialism. It's it it hurts too much. So you just don't think about it. And I think that that's, you know, like Heinlein is he's so American. He's always thinking about it. And that's why he gets shit so wrong when he's, you know, who are the heirs of Patrick Henry? We need more above ground nuclear testing. But he's also not in favor of McCarthyism. Right. And, and, and you can see that in Philip K. Dick with his strive for frontier, 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 as Evan points out. Um, and yet he's not the same kind of guy. He's much, he is also international in a certain sense, even though he's much more stay at home, uh, other than a couple of trips to France and Vancouver, right? He's basically a stay, a stay at home guy who's after boobs <laughs> and not to have him on his own body, but rather on other people's bodies. <laughs> Not so, to have them on. I really want to know more why Glory Ro- Road is sexist, though. The novel? Oh, I have to. I can't tell you if that's the right. If that's the right one, I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, let me look at the schedule and see which ones you were on. Last one was. I, mean, I, I will fear no evil. You were not on that. What is sexist? Was I supposed I, to like, be? I think marriage uh, is I don't sexist. Know. I think the Code of Hammurabi is. Patriarchal. It was. It's been years though. Like that was a couple of years ago. I think Double Star, you were on. I, Puppet I Masters, you were not on. Here's the thing. I think a comedian making Friday? a joke and failing huh? making a joke is is. My son was on that. Sexist. Yeah, I think it was. I think. Yeah. I think a male writer. It's Glory Road for sure. Head of a woman. Glory uh, Road. Yeah. If it was a long time ago, because I will fear no evil was this year, I think, right? Yeah, no, no, it was wasn't this year. Yeah, so it was Glory Road. Um, uh, sometimes you you can just be thrown off by something early on as well. But um, let me see if I can find the e text. Glory Road. I didn't find it. 
particularly unwholesome. Uh, PDF, maybe. Uh, no, that's a review. Full text. I, I mean, is, is, is the depiction of Becky Thatcher, is it sexist? Becky Thatcher. Twain's. Is, is, oh. is Twain's depiction of Becky Thatcher sexist? Um, I'm guessing no. <laughs> uh, it's been so long, but. It's, yeah, it's been so long, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's a no. Uh, here's Glory wrote in uh, PDF on, on. Uh... Or how Melville depicts the Pacific Island, the the Taipei. No, uh, that's not on. sexist at all. See, the thing is, is there, there, there. I want to know what this is. I, I think a, a male writer trying to get in the head of a, of a of a woman character and failing at doing that starts on page six because of whatever son. blinker past however blinkered he may be i don't know short of a I'm pregnant wife with a well-to-do I mean, I, parents I, I, the I, greatest security law greatest security lay in being 4f so my mother was a okay i'm just reading random passages with girl stuff uh my mother where is it my mother was certain that dad's death had resulted from wounds from the veterans administration oh Oh, there's something about Playboy there. Short of a Was pregnant wife with well-to-do parents, the greatest security lay in being F4. Yeah, uh, 4F, yeah. Playboy, uh, here's one. Uh, but we were not a lost generation. There's a Evan phrase. We were worse. We were the safe generation. Not beatniks. The beats were never more than a... See, now I'm getting triggered. <laughs> the beats were never more than a few hundred out of... Millions. Oh, we talked beatnik jive and dug cool sounds. I love Heinlein pretending to be a hippie. <laughs> cool sounds in hysteria. Disagreed with Playboy's poll on jazz musicians just as earnestly as if it mattered. We read Salinger and Kerouac and used language that shocked our parents and dressed sometimes in beatnik fashion. But we didn't think the bongo drums and beard co- <laughs> and the beard compared with money in the bank. We weren't rebels. We were as conformist as army worms. Security was our unspoken watchword. Heinlein getting uh, the the beatniks wrong. <laughs> trying to be the beatniks. That's triggering for sure, but that's not what drew mice off, I don't think. I remember... Yeah, I I remember. The beatniks wrong. That's my thing. For whatever reason, he got the beatniks wrong. Yeah. And uh, male writers her, can get women wrong sometimes. Yeah. I mean, her navel was the jewel the Persian like poets King, raised. Her legs were long for her height. Her hands and feet were not small, but were slender, graceful. She was graceful in all ways. It was impossible to think of her in a pose ungraceful. Yet she was so live and limber that, like a cat, she could have twisted herself into any position. Her face, how do you describe perfect beauty except to say, uh, when you see it, you can't mistake it. Her lips were full and her mouth rather wide. It was faintly curved in the ghost of a smile, even when her features were at rest. Her lips were red, but if she was wearing makeup of any sort, it had been applied so. There was wife swapping in this book. It was there was um there was a sex island too. Remember there was a uh, <laughs> uh, like a it's a real island off the coast of southern France that was all nudist. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at the show notes now, and it does say you know 
the, the horrible, island. so good, annoying. Those are the notes. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, horrible, so good, annoying. I guess it's just me and Paul on that one. Heinlein can't help himself, trying to focus on the good things. What? Huh? What are you doing here? Not quite proper. Cross universe stories, eternal jams. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's wife swapping, but I, it's, I, I guess you didn't get that How far into it. How is wife swapping sexist? No, see, I don't think any of these things is what triggered Misa. No, I, I left a, near, like, I didn't read, I didn't get. I'm going to spank way. you. <laughs> I think there was something about spanking. He's yeah, really into spanking. Yeah. Paddle you. Uh, you know what? There was spanking in this book, too. Remember the general, he bit his finger or thumb? And he, he says, I, I paddled you or something. It's like, that's weird, too. I mean, whatever you want to think about wife swap. I don't think Mice has a problem Men there. always had non-monogamy. This is why I say the sexual revolution benefited women. This is why Evan's so triggered. <laughs> um, Did you read it, Evan? Did you read Men this? Men always Florida? had non-monogamy. I haven't read it. Oh, you should read ah, it. Well, maybe you should read it but and then see if it throws have, you up at the beginning. I'm trying to get my head around this Heinlein as a sexist thing. I mean, that, that dude, what, what we spend so much time. I'm saying there, this book, that book, whatever it was. Yeah, it was me. Clary Road, I think. Okay, but uh, my my what I'm thinking is like men always had non-monogamy as an option. I mean, even the lower classes. I, mean, I think it's just always, a slur. There's concubines for the rich, and there, there's there's hookers for the working class, and 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 obviously men were you know like there's no male equivalent of slut, right? There still isn't really in English. Maybe there is now. Maybe the Zoomers have invented ah, the word. Or something. Himbo, man whore. Yeah. Uh, okay. Lovecraft's always but, calling people bimbos, men so, included. <laughs> Yeah, yeah but those are those are just variations on a female. I don't know. I think he's talking about their brains, whether they're male or female yeah. bimbos. But yeah, if if some husband imposes wife swapping on his wife because he's like a pervert or something, yeah, that's not a good thing. But. It's not mean. For it's not I nice think it might women. be that the women are so pliant. The same sexual that men had always had. Like, that's, like that's all of the women are, are pliant and like like sexually available in Heinlein stories in a way that like um like at least comes across as like cringe sometimes to like some people and like I think that that could like like hmm. the underlying set of assumptions like could be like described as sexist. Oi, oi, it's I I, I really think they just. They're just trying to, it's smear, right? It's what you do is you, somebody, you don't want somebody to be like, there is an ideology some, somehow going on in, and it isn't, I think like one of the people on that podcast had read, she said, or they said, uh, a whole bunch of Lovecraft and the other one hadn't read any. And one of them was like happy that the other one had given her them permission to uh, not read Lovecraft because you know it, all of the stuff is filtered down through three generations. So now the important, the good stuff's pure, right? So we don't need that. And I was like, that absolutely wrong. That's not the good stuff. 
The good stuff is the poetry. The good stuff is the uh, really incredible writing. Um, and so that, that there's like a kind of a, a lie that they're, te- they're telling themselves long enough. It's like Russiagate, you know, it's just tell it long enough. Uh, everybody believes it. Everybody says it. Everybody reinforces it. It's like a religion, right? But what, what fundamentally is at the core of it is not just that he's a racist. It's not just that. There's something else because Heinlein's not a racist. And when they call him a racist, it doesn't ring true. Right? And when they call him a sexist, it doesn't ring true. Right? Heinlein is not a racist. He's a white guy, for sure. He is an American, for sure. But he's anti-racist, in fact. Um, I, I mean, but there's something creepy and, like, specifically male about him. Not that, like, being specifically male is a sexist thing. And, like, maybe there's a category error here. Well, and, like, there are things that read as creepy, like, about him to people. I think I think Philip K. Dick is a lot okay. more of a lech than, than uh, Heinlein is. Uh, but like Heinlein Philip is, K. Dick is, is like a beta male. Robert Heinlein is an alpha male, and so like I don't know. Family. I don't know, but I I don't know if those terms are 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 real or well, yeah, they're not scientific. I'm just but saying, like, I also don't like Heinlein between the two of them. Heinlein isn't going around pumping iron, right? He isn't like flexing, and neither is Dick. But he's one of the big three, right? Like, he is in like, that sense. He's, he's a, a flex person. Yes. He was. You know what really rankles me about Heinlein is his beliefs come across as unassailable. So when he has an, a character argue with another younger character, usually, um, he says, this is why you're wrong, you idiot. Right. And then they make a speech. And I'm like, no, Heinlein, you're wrong here. This is wrong. And his confidence, I mean, that's, that's what really rankles me about saying, you know, uh, something so, like, why isn't everybody upset? That's what, uh, like, I, I know most people didn't listen to it, but the people who did, they just praise it. Like, it's, like, either they don't know or they're buying into it. Um, or like they just silently. He didn't enjoy it. Like, let, that's like a possibility. Let, too, let right? me just uh, refocus this. So I sent you, um, Will, and um, I didn't send it to Misa, I don't think, uh, mm-hmm. and Evan, but I could have sent it to Misa, um, uh, the critical drinker tweet. So this guy, I follow him on YouTube. I watch his videos. He he's sort of critiques sh- stuff like, um, I don't know, Picard and... Marvel movies and that sort of thing, right? And he said, just out of the blue, there's no tweet associated with it. Few things piss me off more than, quote, Star Trek is a communist utopia argument. Yeah, you did send that. Okay, good. Uh, communism involves distributing finite resources equally. Uh, quotation marks around that. Technology of Star Trek allows for effectively unlimited resources, negating any need for communism or any traditional economic model. Um, I don't see any problem with that at all, except who's making that argument. I did search it up and there are some results, but somebody must have said it to trigger him here like that, right? But he's also got the, what's that weird font when you go capitals in the middle of a sentence, a middle of a word? Capital S, small t, capital A, small r, capital T, small r, capital. Like, it just shows that you're like an idiot a little bit. An idiot? 
So, no, I know. It's just, uh, I mean, what he's trying to say, like, he's saying they're saying that because, like, they're, like, like stupid. I yeah. mean, people do, like, like people do say stupid on the Internet. Well, I, I put stars around when I say turgid, right? Yeah. Um, because but, I'm trying to show that. Uh, so I guess there's that, right? But then his follow-up tweet was the thing that threw me off. Like, Adenum, communism is, was, and always will be, be shit. And like, I notice a lot of people have, have a need to say that. And then if you look at the comments, they're all like that. And I'm like, what? But these guys are idiots. This is like a core principle of American ideology. Yes. Yes. Um, is the idea that like, um, I mean, it's just like the tragedy of the commons, like taken to the nth degree. Like there's no, uh, well, like, we have to cancel Harden now because like we're all basically animals who just want to like steal. And, uh, I mean, like, a more complicated version of the argument is communism just puts somebody else on top of you, which is, like, is or isn't true, right? Right. Um, but, uh, I mean, the problem I had with this here is uh, where he just – he makes up his own definition of communism. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, which is it's distributing oh, finite resources that. equally. Like, so no principle of communism has ever been, like, uh, all resources are distributed equally, right? It's usually right. stated as, like – from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Right. Um, uh, uh, and then secondly, like the finite thing is just made up. We've never lived in a society without finite resources, but nobody like in like coming up with communist philosophy was like, okay, well, the, these ideas only are for if there's finite resources, but if somehow there were infinite resources um, and like there's not infinite resources in Star Trek. No, right? I've been rewatching like, Next well, Generation and, and they, they just had a trade deal with some planet. And then there was another one where they were going to buy a, uh, access to a stable warp zone or whatever. You know, uh, but, I mean, it's, wormhole. It's, a, it's a utopian, it's like, it's a utopian state socialist society. They're like very open about that in the Next Generation anyway. Right. Yes. But it's like, it's, you know, like, that's what you were saying, I think, Evan, right? On your tweet. But I mean, it, it's like, it's like yeah. communism yeah, without I, politics. If you know what I, I mean. mean. We are right now post scarcity in food, right? Probably clothing, housing, and, and audiobooks. You go to Taipei. You go to Taipei and you walk around at night, like half the apartments are dark and maybe everyone's out partying, going to, you know, hopefully they're all at swingers parties or something. But, <laughs> My guess is that most of them are empty because they're owned by someone and there's, it's more profitable at the end of the day for them to sit on it than to rent it out for low rent or something to people who maybe could use. It's, a, it's work to rent stuff. Affordable out. housing in the city. But food housing, food, housing, clothing, I think we are essentially post-scarcity. We make enough food for 10 billion people. And we got what, seven and a half billion. Housing is not post scarcity. Not around here, goddammit. Okay. Not around here. Nothing. But potentially it could be. Oh I yes. Mean, I think in China it is. Well, well in China it is. But okay, let's say food and clothing, right? And we don't the post scarcity itself, this was what you said to me, Jesse, correcting me. I mean, I do think communism is a post scarcity philosophy. Like I think Marx talks about you need to have the material abundance. Right, even Xi Jinping, you know, if I'm going to say something nice about him, it'll be this. I think he's right that until you have these like material foundations, you can't really have communism. Right? Doesn't mean, as you pointed out, if you have post scarcity, you're going to have socialism or communism. Right? right. 
And that's uh, that's the case with food, right? I still have to buy my food. Right. And if I don't have it's money... The, it's I money that's not post-scarcity. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not it's Star not Trek itself. I, I, like, I've been re-watching um, like, original series. You've been re-watching the later stuff. Next Generation, yeah. Series. And like, there's an episode where there is a colony. It's actually Kirk's colony, right? Right. His brother's and colony. Up, oh, okay. And the, the guy... The guy, this is like all happened in the past, but the, Kirk sees the guy, right? And says, oh, he's a war criminal. Right. Like, okay, a, that one. Yeah. He's a big bad guy because he Thanos the the colony. You guys remember this episode? Yeah, yeah. He, Where he it, killed half the it, colony, for, right? And then choosing who, yeah, yeah. The actor? Yeah. No, no, uh, no, no. Oh, yeah. Was it the Con- actor? Con- yeah. It's called Con- Con- Yeah, Con- it is. Yeah. It is that one. Yeah, he was a famous mm-hmm. actor. And he recognizes him. Yeah. And, and you know, it, you don't see this, like, socialism, communism in original series that much. Well, yeah. But Next Generation yeah. has, like, that famous speech in the first season, right? Or that famous episode. They're always giving that speech. Yeah. The, or not really a speech. Yeah, it's a speech Picard gives, right? Like, yeah. To a number the, of them. To the time travelers or the cryogenically frozen people. Right. Right? That episode kind of is the foundation of this argument that right. that Star Trek is sort of this post-scarcity communist. Right? It, it, but when you get to Deep Space Nine, you're back to like markets and trade, as you said, and you got whole... Like, you have replicators, but the Ferengi are still able to like sell shit and, and do yeah, business. Yeah, Fer- Ferengis are such a you know? great the, addition. The holodecks are not post-scarcity mm-hmm. on because they they, they set off in relief it is the it, it's basically american capitalism gone wild right um yeah. and, and actually it's what's funny is it's actually a cartoon version of it because real american capitalism isn't about the small businessman trying to get ahead right it's yeah. it's yeah, about yeah, the yeah. A, trade federations an american and, archetype though yes like, it is like it, that's those guys are the shock troops for the like uh for the big capitalists like you know the what? small businessman who believes he can get ahead armin shimmerman played four different ferengis on on the next generation uh, yeah, before he eventually gets the role as Quark, right? Um, he was he was Quark on one Next Generation episode as well. But I was like, oh yeah, like he is such a, uh, it, it is such a well defined cartoonish thing that it sets off in a relief. Like we have to have this gold pressed latinum thing. I always thought about how when Riker has his card games, you know, they're going all in or friendly game or whatever. You know these. These, uh, yeah. It, 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 whenever you try and play, in my view, whenever in my life, whenever I've tried to play poker with people who are not putting up real money for every chip, the games are ridiculous because there's no. I mean, poker's not really a good game, anyways. But when you're able to wager everything and it doesn't have any consequence, and everybody wages everything, nobody, you know, you can. Why would you bluff? Right? You're, just, yeah. <laughs> you're just all in every time. It's basically right. But when those have real world consequences, um, so either they're so intellectually past Jesse at that point in the game, or I, which is probably true, there's much more mature characters, although the actors are not very mature. Um, <laughs> you know, Picard seems like a super genius on the show. Of course, he didn't write any of the words, right? 
<laughs> the actor. And so when they and ask him, what do you want to do on this next Star Trek? He says, I want to make it about Trump. And I was like, what? That's why it's such a shitty show. He really didn't take in. It. He's just an actor. Twilight of the boomers. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the, the only thing they'd let him do in the old show is like, he's a Shakespearean actor. I'd like to do some Shakespeare. I mean, you're already drinking Earl Grey tea and have an English accent for a Frenchman. What's more? Well, uh, give him the acting thing. But Gene Roddenberry's idea of, you know, post-scarcity uh, utopia is the attraction of of the show, other than the fact that they take an, a vision of how humanity can be and then see that in relief against ridiculous, regular humanity. I watched one last night where they go to a planet and it's basically the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Federation shows up and they kidnap Dr. Crusher and she, <laughs> the, the guy, they're using some new warp, or I don't know, transport technology that damages their cells Basically, yeah. it kills them uh, to do this, uh, I don't know, transporter room shit. Um, and the, the, the sympathies are actually on both sides. Um, but that was in the, you know, the like 1990 or something. This is like third season episode. Um, as we learn more about what is actually happening between the Israelis and the Palestinians, or at least as I learn more, I'm like, Oh, geez, there's like one side that's evil and the other side that basically has done nothing for like 30 years. Right? Like, when was last time the Palestinians did anything that hurt the Israelis in r real terms? Almost nothing, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like the 60s. Uh, yeah. Well, no, you know, you can go to the 70s and there was, you know, some, there were some rockets, I guess, you know, in between, but. Really, it's like this is this is ridiculous. And who's who is the Federation in this terms? It's the United States. I mean, most of the crew, other than you know, like Wesley's uh, born in space between planets or whatever, but his mom and his dad are are Americans. Riker's an American. Um, I guess Data's not an American. Where, where, yeah, I guess he was built in space. <laughs> Somewhere in space. Um, mm -hmm. Picard's from France. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, which is so funny. It's like <laughs> the, the episode where he like fights his brother in the vineyard is just like, I mean, I know it's like a serious That's a thousand episode, times but... better than every Picard episode. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that, yeah, I, uh, you know, that was, that was special. Um, I have to go here in about 20 minutes and I want to, uh, read to you all, uh, this, uh, um, piece of flash fiction I published in the local DSA oh, yeah, you uh, tweeted newsletter. Or something. D uh, DSA stands for Democratic Socialists of America. Um, the cost so, uh, of the landlords in Mouseland, it's called. Right? Yeah, landlords in Mouseland. So the, the the Canadians among among here like get the the Mouseland reference. Is that? Is I think that you well told me about Canadians? it, but no, I tell no, myself. No, you don't have to elaborate. Oh, so Mouseland is. Uh, Mouseland was a, a parable that um, uh, Tommy Douglas uh, liked to give uh, when he was like campaigning, and uh, the the uh, you know the principle is like it's like ridiculous that like uh, mice vote for a cat government when they should be voting for other mice, mm. um, oh. and so and so that's like why you should support like the CCF for the NDP. Um, uh, the uh, so we had this uh, we had this news story and. Uh, Lexington, Kentucky recently. I live in Richmond, just outside of Lexington. 
And uh, the uh, the story that the news station did was the cost of coronavirus, a landlord's perspective. Oh God! Uh, oh. And and so uh, I'm just going to read like the first uh, 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 six paragraphs of this little news story. Um, they're really short paragraphs. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Welch wears many hats: wife, mother of three, and landlord. Her eight investment properties are helping Holy support shit. her family while her husband <laughs> launches his own business. Recently, that financial safety net has turned into a financial burden since some of her tenants haven't been paying the bills. It's only been a couple, but when they're getting six to $7,000 behind, it just becomes a strain, Welch said. It just affects things. Welch said she understands people are struggling to make ends meet right now, and therefore she is willing to work with tenants who are communicating with her on potential solutions, including payment plans. However, it's the renters who are not putting in the effort to communicate how to move forward that she said she has become frustrated with. I just don't understand, uh, Welch said. I just can't fathom where that comes from. I so, can't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wrote, a, I wrote a rebuttal to that, and I sent a link to it. You want yeah, to click that link? I got There's it. There's like a cute picture um, that goes along with the story. The cost um, of the it, coronavirus for landlords in Mouseland, a fable in rebuttal to Lex 18. The yeah. cat was poised firmly outside the mouse hole, his mouse hole, uh, though the cat received regular meals of cat food and was by no ways a hungry or desperate animal by a custom of cats since... Oh, so you better read this. By a custom of cats, the mice... In, yeah, you read this. Yeah, sorry, there's some run-on sentences. The cat was poised firmly outside the mouse hole, his mouse hole. Uh, though the cat received regular meals of cat food and was by no ways a hungry or desperate animal, by custom of cats, the mice inside were his caloric safety net. Huh. In order to avoid a full-scale invasion, the mice sacrificed one of their children to the cat on the first of every month. This mouse hole was six or seven mouselings late on giving the cat his due. The cat hissed, I used to have eight mouse holes as a safety net, but since you stopped feeding me your children, it has become a strain. It just affects things. <laughs> uh, mouse family, the cat cried. I am willing to work with you if you have become barren and unable to produce mouselings. I am willing to accept an adult mouse as two months' rent. I just can't fathom why you're unwilling to work with me. Nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, so, uh, in, in defense of this uh, landlord lady... And her eight rental properties. Um, this is what everybody is being told to do because the economy is so shit. It's what every, every channel on television, all those business channels, CNBCs, MSNBC, CBS business or whatever they are, are all telling you is you need to buy investment properties, right? It is your way to financial security. And so when people do that, who are, you know, this sounds like a lady who, who bought into this, um, when her shit crashes, which it is, um, and she yeah. owns, owes money to the bank that she can't pay, um, six, seven thousand dollars a month, that's a fuck ton of money. Um, uh, if she's got six or seven mortgages, um, that she's trying to pay off, she's going to crash. And sad story for her, I guess. But it's what everything is like. So it's like it's everything is wrong. It's not this article attacks her personally and rightly so. 
right? And every other person who's doing that. But this is a system-wide problem, right? This is neoliberalism. This is capitalism. I mean, it, it, it's speculation on land, first of all, in yeah. capitalism. Like, the capitalism has never had, like, an era where there wasn't a housing crisis. Like, there's, like, eras where there's right. like, less of a housing crisis. Right. Oh, yeah. When, so when, a, when I was a, a kid, p- people could afford to live in apartments even if they had dishwashing jobs, right? Um, yeah. and, and dishwashing jobs paid substantially more, um, and jobs yeah. were a lot more available. But yeah, it, this is, uh, this is exacerbated by sort of a uh, lack of, it's like overcapitalizing it, investing in everything, right? Um, this is how a lot of the people I know who have got money have got it. Right? Yeah, well, and there's federal policy in the United States that, like, uh, makes it, like, like, these kinds of, uh, like, these sorts of investments are, like, not just incentivized ideologically. There's, like, you know, like, like, they're incentivized by, like, federal policy, like, right mm-hmm. now. Um, uh, you know, so, uh. So I sent a link to uh, our more systemic it. response, which is the Lexington Tenants Union. Um, so um, is uh, what uh, we're actually having our uh, our uh, tomorrow is uh, the union's like day where they're going to like uh, try to like inform more people about the union. So uh, they're going out to do that tomorrow. I'm excited for them. It don't look like a huge group. No. Yeah, that's just one photograph. Um, but yeah, no, I think the tenants union was started like last month, so it's not very big. Oh, yet. It's not like there's a lot of uh, like uh, very first thing that would need to happen if somebody could wave a magic wand to fix things. You'd have to break up every goddamn media company into a million different ones, if not, you know, just make them locally locally controlled, locally owned, um, because there's no competition. The competition is only for the high end and keep it like when I, uh, do you guys see all those tweets of Saturday evening post? I did covers. Yeah. Um, so I, I just picked the ones out that I was working on. I didn't like pick them specifically for the covers. I was just working on that particular issue. And, um, the, the, a lot of the questions they have on the covers, like why do they hate us in Panama? (laughs) It's like, well, <laughs> that needs an explainer. And it's like, uh, uh, why are ja- Japanese teachers turning communist? Right? It's some article. And then it's like, why do they hate us? <laughs> it's the question over and over again. Why do we have to give the Germans more money? <laughs> like, all, like, these things need to be explained. And then if you look in the actual magazine, there's ads from all the big spenders, right? Like, this is a... This is the premier fiction magazine, basically. Saturday Evening Post. Maybe New Yorker, you could argue, was better in a certain way. But they had Shirley Jackson stories, too, right? They got Heinlein. This is Ray Bradbury. This is the slicks. This is the best, right? And the ads are from companies like Raytheon. It's not Raytheon. They didn't exist or whatever. Um, and all the car companies and the fruit companies and everything that, you know, empire. Everything empire involved so they have to explain these things to their audience because these questions are coming around but these questions aren't even asked anymore like that time <laughs> that time they actually yeah, did the bourgeois press. no no like like it, it like the there's like uh, do you remember that giant explosion in uh lebanon 
Yeah. Like, I bet most people who saw that video, if they saw it at all, didn't even know what Lebanon is or where it is. <laughs> right? It's like, there's just no, like, when do you get taught about it? Who's on TV telling you about it? What, what? <laughs> do we have to start a podcast that's just basic education of, like, where countries are in the world and what their history is? Cause... I don't know. Like, I think the Chinese, young Chinese are not much better than Americans. No, they're all studying for are, SATs. Are they, like, more into the same things they're, they're that we are than they're, we they're are? Like... Yeah. They, they want to be the, the, they all want to be, their parents want them to be uh, in the elites of the United States. I mean, I think that's a real, like, uh, it's a real contradiction for, uh, whatever, um, like, stated, uh, like, public policies there are for, like, the party in China that, like, if we're, like, trying to, like, construct socialism on, like, a 50 to 100 year timeline or whatever, uh, if we're, like, creating a new ruling class that doesn't really believe in socialism, it, like, makes that less likely. Two cents. I think yeah, I read I, once that. I agree with um when when a local newspaper goes under like everything goes more south oh yeah definitely it's yeah. sunlight right it's sunlight on the things that are corrupt <clears throat> and what's the stuff david simon's always talking about right yeah like, I, I think maybe to such a degree he thinks it's like a panacea like strong newspapers because he comes from newspapers right yeah he was bought out that's why he became like right doing hbo because yeah. he he lost his job as a crime reporter. Yeah, but, I mean, I mean, what Malcolm I, X said about the newspaper. I used to you read know. my local newspaper when I was like in college. I actually subscribed to the Boston Daily Herald, and you you this is true. You you got decent reporting on what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. At you least you got now. some. It's 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 been bought up by one of these big conglomerates. And, like, half of it is just reprints of, like, the USA Today kind of mm-hmm. shit. The Louisville and papers like inter- that now. Like, national news, that's all just uh, wire stuff. And, you know, AP or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the local reporting is, like, the movie times and right. <laughs> shit like that. The classified ads. There's almost nothing now. I mean, and Wassa's not a... Where I'm from is not like a super small town. 50,000 people in the kind of commercial area. Yeah. So, We're going to have an election in, uh, on the but 15th. I don't know about if this is like called on too much of corruption at the local level. Probably. Probably. It's, it's very tough. It's, de- it's very depressing. I don't get the sense of someone in City Hall every day keeping an eye on shit. There. <sighs> Yeah, but uh, that uh, Canada Land podcast is doing good work, even though I think he's going downhill. <laughs> he's he had kids, and he's spending a lot of time that he also focuses on other stuff. Maybe that's a good thing, but um, at least it, you know, like they exposed the Justin Wee story where he's giving up almost a billion dollars to a company. His wife. Oh, was that and, him that did that? Uh, indirectly, yes. Um, oh. Because they kept doing stories on Wii and they kept this, it's like a fake charity that uh, some kids st- <laughs> fucking kids. Some kids started this charity when he was a teenager 
I was like, I want to stop child slavery. Right. You know, like these kids who want to do that. It's like, oh, I, all idealistic and wide, wide eyed. Figured out a really good grift. Right. Yeah. It's a, like, such a good grift for him that they ended up using child slaves. <laughs> it's like, it's like, fuck you, you fucking whiner, asshole, rich guy, butting around with Justin. Fuck. And yeah, Jesse, Jesse uh, Brown exposed that in part. Um, and it made it basically, you know, if nobody's talking about it, nobody will talk about it. CBC is getting so fucking bad. I see their reporters like, just like, eh, crazy. Like they're talking about the, uh, what's this Russians, uh, what's Putin's poisoning everybody. These stories are like just very bad sourcing on it. As like, you're just making an assertion that that happened because you think it happened before. And the other one was like, not so, like, it's not so clear that that's what it is. And yet, because it's, you know, you can say, once, once everybody agrees somebody's a target, they just like, let it go. Right? Like, once, once you say, have you, changing the subject slightly. Anybody watched any of the Lovecraft Country show other than me? No. No. I'm looking forward to it someday. No, don't look forward to it. It's not. It's not. I watched the first three episodes. Yeah, I didn't even get to the third one. I only got to the second. Well, it's it's how the book. It, yeah. It's actually, I have a feeling it's pretty close to the book. Well, they like they 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 didn't use a shaga. Mm, yeah, that wasn't like what bothered me. Instead of a shaga, that's the only main divergence from the book mm. the book itself is all these different vignettes yeah it's like stories that are just loosely connected did you read it no no i didn't it's i mean the characters are the same and they run throughout but it's just these different vignettes i think the third episode he wanted it to be good. a tv show you said it was good because yeah. it looked like shit i saw a review or something i thought well i think this recap are crappy they well, there's that. Money, uh, that's sort of less. Well, I mean, it's very pretty, like the houses, the cars, the dresses. Me, the music oh, yeah. choices are very hip. I'm not a music guy, so whenever they try to do something, action or the monsters look bad, the building collapsing looks bad. But the story doesn't make any sense as far as I can follow. Like it's just scene after scene, uh, or episode after yeah, episode. But of, that's how the novel is. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I don't think I need to keep watching I mean, is what I'm saying. It's He's just... Like, these would all be interesting stories if they didn't have any supernatural element. Like, about, like, Jim Crow and mm. American history. Mm. Like, the experience I was thinking, of black people... Who is the audience for this? Because black people yeah, are poor. Story. Just you so you know, black people are poor. HBO is expensive. So no, who is the I, audience for I, this? I think it's doing more than that. I think, like... This idea of the mixed bloodlines. This is something like that's really Lovecraftian, actually. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the sub theme there that really does. Yeah, that's in the second episode. I think. Lovecraft. The first and second episode, which is really about like these, you know, the fact that. So Condoleezza Rice right. is watching this show. Is what I'm thinking. It's rich people who have HBO, Maybe. right? But what I'm saying is that without uh, the supernatural, is a relevant story. It's part of American history. 
And the well, who, who's the audience? Black people for, uh, trying to move into white communities and being faced with intimidation and violence and so like threats. the we we're talking and about David Simon. Say, no, we don't need a ghost. Did you see the third episode, Jesse? No, I I only watched a recap of it. So the third episode's the best one, but it's still it, and the book's the same way. It has this ghost in this house. What really the interesting story is black people trying to move into this white community, and then the white community rallying against them because that all happened. Mm-hmm. you know communities that in when you had desegregation and in the north you didn't have jim crow so but you tell white communities and black middle class people moved into these communities and then they all blanched put up the burning crosses you know and did all kinds of intimidation and that's more interesting than whatever supernatural element they put in the story. yeah that's my yeah. about it but uh, thinking like david simon had uh, a couple of shows. One's Homicide, right? Which was not particularly focused on blacks. Um, it had uh, uh, the main lead, the actor, Andre Brower, was great in it. You know, um, it was about murder in in Baltimore, and that was mostly drug drug violence, drug murders, you know, family murders, and mostly blacks because it's a major black city, right? Um, and that, uh, that was not a critical success on NBC. It lasted quite a long time for a show that wasn't. Um, but I don't think it had a, an epic run like Law and Order or something like that. But, uh, The Wire, again, not a rating success as far as I could tell, but it was a hot show for the people who, obviously it ran long, long enough to do five seasons or whatever. Um, but it was like the it was the one every white person apparently was talking about, right? But it has to be of a certain level, high enough mm-hmm. up to uh, unless you're like me, you just download ever whatever, right? Most people don't have HBO, and so it's like yeah, I bought those DVDs. I still have those. DVDs. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a great show, a really high end show, very interesting show. But also, you're stuck sort of with, uh. It's like, it's 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 like having a bra- black friend because you watched a show, right? Now you know poor people because you watched a show. Is my view of what this is, and so like when I was watching Lovecraft Country, I feel like I'm I'm trying to be cozy and on the right side, you know, and I'm like, nah, that's this is I'm not there. I'm not with it. I think it might also be just the writing's not very good. Um, the music I, is good. I, I think the, the source material, yeah. frankly, isn't that good. Yeah. I think the Ballad of Black Tom does as much better. Yeah. Right. I, I haven't like read that, that one. I haven't well, read I'm that about, one. I'm going to log off, it's y'all. I, All right. Uh, I, I sent a, a link to a, a documentary Evan might like. Um, it's like an hour and a half Southern deal. Patriot. It's about, like, the, the central story in it is, like, uh, uh, activists from Louisville, Kentucky, like, uh, getting brought up on sedition charges because they were involved in, uh, integrating a white neighborhood. Fuck. Um, so it's like pretty interesting. But, um, anyway, I'm gonna bounce. It's good talking with you all. Yeah, that's, that's, I... this is the stuff the third episode of that series is about. Huh. I gotta yeah, go too. Um, alright. So it's great, great talking to everybody. Um, and I'll see you next time. What is next time? Uh, uh, um, just make sure I know what's hold going on. Hold on a second. I'll just check. Uh, 
I gotta work tomorrow. The, well, the jewel, I think it's the jewel, jewel of the seven stars. Bram Stoker, yeah. Right. Okay. Good yeah. to know. I'm not doing Drawn World, by the way. Just okay. Uh, oh yeah, no, it doesn't show you on there either. Do you want to be on there? You put me as a question mark or something. I think, mm-hmm. or you gave it to me. Okay. Okay. So bye bye. Bye, Misa. See you on Twitter. I can't uh, do this every week. No, it's more just like when I'm working. Right. In the summer it was fun. The next working. one you're scheduled for is not anytime soon. Uh, it's Blade Runner. Um, we're gonna Blade have to. Blade Runner f- video. Yeah. Well, what about those weeks? Paul's gone. Well, we got to fill that uh, fill that in somehow. Um, I actually have. Um, I th- we were gonna do uh, a Robert E. Howard, maybe in between uh, Jewel and the Seven Stars and Don't Panic, uh, by Neil Gaiman. Um, but then we need to fill in the bottoms as well. Yeah, it seems I I haven't read a lot of Neil Gaiman. I think he's worth reading more of. He's good. Um, I read his Norse mythology. I read American Gods. Yeah, American Gods. I thought was really impressive. He's very talented. He's talented. He's. I don't know. I I I, I, oh, you know who I thought we had on today. I was going to talk to and didn't was um, Trish. Oh yeah, she's canceled. Okay, I see. (laughs) She crossed out, not canceled. Um, I said uh, something about how there was this story by. Uh, 1966, oh no, 1972 story, I think, called Inconstant Moon by Larry Nevin. And I said, this is probably more, basically more important, or, yeah, than any 21st century novel. This one story. And it's like, she, she got mad at me because I was denigrating 20th century, 21st century novels. I'm like, I think I like I I was like oh, shit I hope I didn't do that and I won't look back what I wrote. It's, no, I'm I'm comparing a novelette or a you know novella, not even it's a really long short story to novels. I've always thought this and like short stories are much better generally at delivering science fiction than novels are. And novels today are almost always sequels and stuff. So one of the things I like about Neil Gaiman is he tries not to do that. He sort of sticks with and he's not really science fiction at all, right? He's fantasy. He's sort of his own blend of fantasy. But he he is, um, like the Graveyard Book is a really good book. It's uh, his take on two things. It's his take on um, Kipling and uh, the, the Jungle Book and also uh, Lovecraft. Um, although that's much more toned down. It's just got a bunch of ghouls going going all over it, right? But it's his own book, too. So he takes those two things and then he's done, right? There's no more sequels to that. Coraline, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a based on a, uh, like an 1897 short story that's, you know, called The New Mother and he does it and then he's done. And he'll come back and deal with gods and stuff over and over again. That's sort of his thing from Sandman. But he, he even the sand, if you read, have you ever read Sandman? Okay, so in comics, it starts off really rough. Comic book? Yeah, it's a comic book series, um, and it's about the one of the. It's like a god of sleep, except he's not really a god. He's like one of these group called the Endless. They're just basically gods, and he's got a sister named Death, right? And they, they, uh, I don't know, look on and look in on human lives, and so it's really an anthology series, right? 
with these god characters sort of spending time with humans in on Earth. Um, and the stories are Neil Gaiman stories, but it's done as a series because, you know, this is basically his first work after writing this Don't Panic novel, which is, it's not a novel, nonfiction book about, um, about, uh, what's his name? Uh, Neil Gaiman writing about Douglas Adams. He went to view, interview Douglas Adams yeah. for, for Rolling Stone or something, and they it turned into an, a, a book, right? So you can you can't really see Douglas Adams throughout Neil Gaiman, but he definitely highly influential, like with with uh, American Gods, right? There's Mister Wednesday, who's very sleepy. Well, that's straight out of a uh, Douglas Adams book, one of the two uh, Dirk Gently books, right? Um, so there was an, uh, a connection, but most, I can't think, like I went through the list trying to find books that would be really like in my head, I was going through the list. Is there any novels that are really good from the 21st century that are important? And I'm like, I don't think there are like, I like, I like books. Yeah. You never read the dark tower. I know it's a series, but Uh, I think it's more a series accidentally than by, by intention, it's sort of developed over time. Is, but I think even that is, doesn't that start in the 90s? Well, it started in the 70s. Oh, okay. The original short stories, the original Gunslinger short stories. He didn't finish it until 2003. But I think the final Dark Tower series, the Dark Tower. 1982 is the Gunslinger, Tower. right? Is, that, is the first. Yeah, but the paperback. stories were published in the 70s. Right. It was four stories, and he added a few I haven't, I haven't read that. I, I can't. Yeah, I, I, I like but... I like uh, Stephen King. I, I'm much more interested in those books that he he doesn't want people to read. Uh, the, the I think it's only Rage school one. shooting one. Yeah, and the reason I'm interested in it is because but he has another school shooting where he's got another shooter crazy shooter book called At Pupil, which he doesn't cancel. Yeah, I haven't was... read though. I haven't read that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into it and see if it's available as an audiobook. No, but that's what I wanted to say before. Like, I think King does female characters fine. He's definitely not a sexist. Right? <laughs> no, but if you read, but like, he's a dude. Salem's Lot, if you read Salem's Lot, his depiction of the female character there. I mean, she's she's fridged to use that term. There was a who is fridged in this story? Because I, I was thinking about that expression in the one we did today. Wasn't somebody killed off? It's got to be a woman. Killed off to advance a male character I, emotional arc. Yeah, oh, well, that, yeah, but that's for to fit the trope. But um, I think, like, like they it, what's that stupid uh, gun movie with Keanu Reeves? Um, they always do sequels to it now. I don't know. Wick, John Wick. Well, yeah, John Wick. Right. Though so they kill off his dog, and mm. and so uh, to me, that's just a sh- that's just trope writing, right? It's like. It's like to get somebody motivated and to do stuff. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care if it's a woman. I don't care if it's a man. I don't care if it's a dog. It's just standard boring trope writing. Um, so that doesn't, if you call that sexism, I say, okay, whatever. Who but cares? Yes. King fridges in Salem's Lot, that, that, that female character. First, she's very shallow. This douchey writer comes back to the lot and she immediately like, Wants to bang him, 
And she's the least interesting character in that novel. But they fall in love or whatever. And then she becomes right. a vampire. And then he has to stake her. It's, uh, I mean, I'm downloading it now. Rage. Audiobook. No longer available. I'm up for that. And the reason I'm up for that is because... Salem's Lot? No, Rage. You up for that? Oh, Rage. See, that one, that might be one Paul would be afraid to read. So we could do that on like the 18th of October or something. Let me see. Audiobooks. Stephen King. Do I have Rage? No, I'm getting it. I don't worry. I do have Rage audiobook. Oh, you do? How'd you get that? You must have pirated it, you pirate. I download, I torrented a whole thing of all the Stephen King audiobooks. Nice. I I, I have all of them. Um, yeah, so. Uh, see, I, I've never read that. Um, yeah. It's from his Bachman era, which I, I I've read. I've read. I've read, read really very little of Stephen King. Um, the Long Walks, pretty. I read that one. Even it's. I mean, it's just life. I mean, there's not much to say about it. You know, it's uh, uh, it, it is very interesting. Yeah, and rage. So I, I read the Long Walk. Like, well known. And the what I thought I I'm I'm pretty sure I wrote a review of it. What I thought is. It's insubstantial in the places where I want it to be substantial. Where it, what it mostly feels like is like it's good at showing somebody being tortured. What it's not good at is showing the explanation for it. And I felt like um, that that was also in in uh, The Running Man, but way less so. Like I wanted to spend more time in the world explaining. Uh, seeing how it came to be and that sort yeah. of thing. And Stephen think, King doesn't ever seem to be interested in that as much as the effect. Yeah, I think that maybe the most interesting Bachman novel is The Regulators, but that's not... I mean, it, it's after everyone knew it was Bachman, and publishing this Bachman was just a... Mm-hmm. Marketing thing. Uh, just just a device to get people to buy it, you know? Right. Whereas the uh, original is an anti-marketing thing, which I like even better. Yeah, which you kind of got to respect the guy for that. I really, I think he's very respectable. He he, he was like actually saying, "And I sell books without my name." Like, yeah, no, he's experimenting. He's very inter- He's very interested. If, uh, there's, uh, I keep thinking about uh, how we have all these people who are have big platforms. I guess is the word for it. Check blue checks, you know, famous podcasts like that one that I. I was writing about has like 40,000 subscribers or something like that. Mine has 2,000, right? Um, I'm doing a hell of a lot better work than they are. I know this because I listen to their show and it's light, but they don't do any homework for it. Like they don't spend any time researching. It's just like, here's a topic for today. Let's talk about it. And the problem with that is it's, you know, weak sauce. It's like, it's like they're not they're not doing their homework what what why should we listen to them right so i feel like there's a lot of people yeah they're comfort they're not doing their homework either the audience isn't doing yes i agree but i i'm so when when uh will says accuses me of being a fan i'm like i'm i'm much more like a an academician without any academy you know like that's sort of I, I went to university for sixteen years. This is really strange. I don't know anybody else who did that. Not like taking years off. That was like straight. And that's weird. Why did I do that? 
because I didn't do it for like a bunch of degrees. I got one or one and a half, right? That's not why I did it. I was like really interested in, in learning shit. And I, I know I'm not normal. Most people, most of my students are like, they want to get, uh, get through university so they can get that good job that their parents are lying to them about <laughs> or lying to them themselves about, right? Um, or maybe they'll get that good job or whatever. Um, but there are, so my criticism is not based on other people. It's based on my own taste. But that's why I'm like interested in King is because he is like, I see him as being like me. He's basically an academician or like uh, the guy, um, H. B. Piper. He's, you know, self-taught and full of, uh, interesting theories that are, you know, not completely wrong all the time. I think that that's real, like all the work you're doing, you don't really need to do it. Yeah. Evan, you're stupid. Why is this? This is not going to make you any money selling books. Are you kidding me? And you if you, if you want to sell books, be Michio Kaku, go on TV and lie to people, give them comforting <laughs> bullshit. You'll be a yeah. ho- ho- total fucking hypocrite. And, uh, and, uh, you know, doing actual harm to humanity, but you'll be financially rewarded for it. Maybe you get your own TV show. So that's where my criticism is coming from. But, uh, that's what, that's why I'm, I, I am interested in Stephen King. It seems to me his son uh, is, is not good at work. Um, he comes up with premises really well and his writing seems okay. But his um, his endings suck. I've, I've I've been noticing that over and over again. Oh, Joe yeah. Hills. Yeah, I'm reading his comics, yeah, I, and his endings are terrible. King, but his endings don't suck. I mean, he he kind of has the purging fire early on in his career. Mm. But I think by his third novel, he's kind of transformed that into like a true eucatastrophe. Like a Tolkien-style catastrophe, and then he doesn't do that that much in later novels. I, I think so. Uh, I think it, he actually has his ethics are good. Is uh, ten eighteen okay for you? You want to do this, Rage? For what? Uh, October eighteenth. Oh, PDF. I can send you the audiobook. I, I'm I'm downloading uh, it. I've already uh, downloaded it. In fact, I just need to okay. zip it together. Um, you want to do that on the eighteenth of October? Yeah, we can do it. That's good. I'll maybe we'll get Marissa and she's um she's a King fan. Steve right. King. I'm gonna go to sleep. Good idea. I'm gonna go pee. I gotta work. Make some coffee. Right. In that order. Alright. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah sounds good. My daughter I got my daughter on Twitter now. Oh uh hashtag me at her no, I don't know. Tell me the thing so I can see her art when she puts it up. She's got some skills. Put apart. I, I, I'm really an art guy too, you know. I'm tweeting little drawings I'm doing. That's I'm a weird guy. I'm not a fan. I'm not dressing up in a Star Trek uniform. I thought about it and I thought seems like a lot of work for very little pay. <laughs> yeah. As in, you know, bonus Expensive in your life. Huh? Expensive to do that stuff too. Oh yeah. Oh, that definitely. All right. I'll see you later. Thanks. Good see you on talking. Twitter's.